There are two ways we can begin this podcast. The way of podcast has no beginning and no end. Our hearts beat in the podcast of the world. The podcast is your home before your birth and after your death. The podcast gives and the podcast takes. Podcast connects all things life to death, darkness to light. That's one way. Here's another way. If you can't get out of it, get into it! Hello, Pod. (laughs) I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the eagerly anticipated by five people and a Tolkien spoiler special for James Cameron's Avatar, The Way of Water. Very, very exciting indeed. It's been a few weeks now since this movie came out. Let's discuss the film itself and joining me to do so over the next whatever amount of time we have. Our three colleagues of such a lethal cunning, we're here today remotely. Couldn't get into the studio today, but I'm joined by Helen O'Hara, our geek queen. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. I see you. I see you, Helen O'Hara. I also see you, James Dyer. I see you too, much to my disgust. Uh, I see you. Hello, hello. And I see you, Nick DeSemlian. Hello. I also, sadly, see you. (laughs) I see you, but I can't touch you. I can't touch you. I can't smell you. I can't smell your musk, your scent. <laughs> yes. Such a shame. Feliz Navidad. Oh, boy. <laughs> there haven't been nearly enough Navidad jokes about Jake Sully in this movie, have there? <laughs> oh, I Jake. just got that. That's very clever. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. How is he as a Navidad, do you think, Jake Sully? I'm not, not so sure he's ticking the, the great parent box in this movie, no. if I'm honest with you. But then, mm. that's, that's part of the thing. Like, like I think, you know, and let's, I almost, I don't know whether we'll get into it or not. I really kind of hope we don't get into the, the level of deeply tedious Twitter discourse on this film. But, you know, going on about Jake being this sort of toxic male father, which is true to an extent. Like, I, I think there is an element of he's this, he's a jarhead and he's trying to adjust to family life and not doing a particularly good job of it which is my long-winded way of saying he's not a particularly good dad at the beginning of this film but he gets there by the end to an extent Mm. does he because he actually sees his son he does uh, with his eyes yes but it it takes one son carking it for him to do that It, it does yeah which is not ideal parenting it's not great it's not great you know my my understanding is i've only been a parent for a while but is that they're not they're not disposable (laughs) <laughs> like no. you can't, you can't just. In order to connect with another child, you can't just throw one under the the gears of a combine harvester or the the or the thresher of a combine harvester. You can't do no, that. That's frowned. That's upon. frowned upon. Yeah. It's frowned yeah. upon. It's my, it's my understanding. I took a course, so perhaps that's what Jake Suli needed to do. He just needed to go on a course. In his defence, all of his children are super annoying and keep running off like every five minutes. He's like, "Stay here for five minutes. I'll be back. Don't run off. Whatever you do." And then five minutes later, they're riding a giant tuna. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we'll get we'll get into this. I know Helen, this is something that you've talked about in the podcast already uh, mm-hmm. with this movie. Uh, but if, if my mother were Natiri, I would be terrified. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't step out of line. I would be like, whatever you want to do is fine by me, Mum. You can kill someone with an arrow from three hundred feet. I'm I'm good. <laughs> I'm I'm happy. You don't want to play with a giant tuna. I am I am staying put. But like, yeah, she isn't given the the disciplinary role at all that we see. You know, she's not the one that ever steps in really with any of that. Um, but equally, she isn't shown with a much of a nurturing role. Besides, as I think, having mm-hmm. uh, took on her knee at one point, she's just not really shown as a parent. I mean, beyond the sort of mama bear action scene at the end, which is look awesome. I mean, I'm not saying otherwise, but there's no real 
there's no real attention to her relationship with the children, which I did find strange. For James Cameron of all people, I find a bit strange. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a bit of a missed opportunity for me. But yeah, I agree. Look, Jake is trying to figure things out and you do get the sense that he comes from maybe a military family, you know, somewhere that he has been pushed this way. That's all he knows. That's what he's kind of modeling his behavior on. And it takes him a while to kind of, mm. you know, get through that and and start maybe seeing something a little bit better for his kids. Indeed. Uh, anyway, listen, we've we've started with the uh, the micro. I want to start actually with the macro. Uh, that's that's pull out. That's that's uh, that's take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. No wait, that, that's that's another James Cameron movie. Uh, that's take off and take a helicopter view of Avatar: The Way of Water. Uh, it is now Friday, January sixth. The movie's been out just over well three weeks as of, as of today. This is the third mm-hmm. week. Uh, it has just blasted past one point five billion. At the global box office, overtaking Top Gun Maverick to become the biggest film of last year. And there are feelings that it might, might be able to hit the $2 billion mark, which in a post-pandemic world is a pretty astonishing achievement. Uh, but that's all about the movie itself. Where do we all stand on the film? How many times have we seen the film? Are we in love with the film? Do we think the film is flawed? Uh, mm-hmm. Nick, you wrote Empire's five-star review, so I know that you are in the firmly hated camp. Uh, <laughs> but where do you stand in this? You, how many times have you seen it? Uh, are you? Do you feel even vaguely... I mean, I also wrote a five-star review of a, of, a, of a sci-fi movie a few years ago. It's been mentioned a couple of times in the podcast. <laughs> You're not in the Attack of the Clones camp. You're not ready to reverse that at this point in time. No, no, I, I'm standing by it. I'm standing by it. I'm just pondering how much Tolkien brain juice you can purchase for $2 billion. <laughs> Amarita, oh, yeah. is that much, what it's Amarita. Yeah, sorry. yeah, how much is a vial of it? How many billions is it? Was it 18? Didn't he say it was 80? It was 80 million. I was like, that seems quite cheap for the most quote unquote valuable substance in the universe, given that there's quite a lot in that jar. Just saying. And what with inflation, it'd be worth that much by next year, let alone by whatever year Avatar's saying. He's the ultimate jarhead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but sorry. Uh, yes, I, I really like this film. I really like this film. I, I can see the flaws. I can see some flaws. I don't think it's a perfect film, but I think it's just such an experience. And it's something about it just felt so refreshing to me. Like I didn't mm. feel like we'd seen this kind of kind of film bef- uh, for quite a while. Uh, just the, the, the well, I, I really enjoyed the sincerity of it, the earnestness mm. of it. Um, which I found quite refreshing because most blockbusters, you know, not just Marvel, everything is quite sort of jokey and, and light and I quite like the the intensity of it. Um, and then I just thought the world building was great. I loved all the the sea stuff. Um, I agree Natiri could have been used more and I think there are other flaws, but all those flaws are swept away by the magnificence of Mick Scoresby, the greatest <laughs> character possibly ever. And I'm going to stand by that. <laughs> I, I cannot hear Scoresby without thinking of his dark materials. I'm sorry. I just. Lee Scoresby. It does not yeah. compute. That entire surname, and I'm, apologies to anyone with it, I'm sure you're wonderful, but that entire surname now means you should be flying around in a balloon with a hair. Um, otherwise, I'm not interested. Sorry. That's with a hair, not with hair, because, you know. Yes, with a hair. Correct. Mick Scoresby has lots of hair. I learned yesterday there was there was a famous whaler called from Grimsby called Scoresby back in the from day. Grimsby the that, film, I don't remember that. Not <laughs> Grimsby the film. That that yeah, that had uh, some unpleasant creature stuff in it. Um, it really but did. Uh, yeah, that must be deliberate then in Cameron's part, right? To to call this guy Scoresby. Nothing is accidental be. in a James Cameron movie. Imagine if it was. Imagine if he didn't know what he was doing and everything was just, <laughs> uh, you know, just a, the the product of complete and utter luck. 
uh, that he wasn't the most technologically advanced yeah. and capable director in the history of movies, but he was just some <laughs> bumbling idiot like us. That would be yeah. amazing. William Scoresby, and he's from Pickering, and he was a very famous whaler and mapper of the Arctic regions. Uh-huh. There you go. Yeah, no, clearly there not an go. accident. All right. So, uh, so Nick basically emerged from this movie just chanting Mick Scoresby and, and bellowing <laughs> all Mick Scoresby's lines. Uh, if you can't get out of it, get into it. I'm the one with the harpoon and, and things like that. Uh, and that's Brendan Cowell plays him. And I believe he's using his own accent as well. Uh, unlike Jermaine Clement. <laughs> unlike Jermaine Clement, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, that's the thing that I think perhaps has taken me out of the movie the most. I, you know, I've seen Avatar The Way of Water twice now. I enjoy it perfectly fine until Jermaine shows up as Dr. Ian Garvin. And then he opens his mouth and instead of singing some sort of deadpan song about the joys of a Tolkien <laughs> in in in, a, in that New Zealand accent, he's he's doing a, a very solid, very good American accent, and but it's the fact that it's Jermaine Clement, and we all know what he sounds like. And I just can't get past that. So one star then for Avatar: The Way of Water. Wow. <laughs> no, I just I can't get past it. I don't. What's going on with that? But, uh, but I did anyway. say in my review, his accent is the most alien thing in the whole film. Um, mm. But it does, <laughs> yeah, it does feel wrong. But just that that final. Um, that final 45 minutes or whatever it is, the film is mm. such amazing action. I absolutely love it. It's such a ride. And um, just the, yeah, just the, the effects, I don't, I just mind blowing. Like oh, yeah. you can't figure out, you're staring at the screen going, how, what's real, what's not. Is the water real? You know, so yeah. it's just so mm. advanced and insane. Jim, but what do you know about this? Because you're you're the big Cameron head here in this group. We're all we all love James Cameron. Um, we've all we've all been in the room with him. We've all touched him. We've all knelt at his. Uh, anyway, we've uh, we've all we've all knelt before <laughs> him Lord. in genuflection. Uh, and, uh, but you, do you know how they did this? What was real? I, I believe. I may have said this before, but I believe Sam Worthington in real life is entirely CG, but everything else is real. Is that is that's that right? Is yes, that the novies are real, and all the humans are artificial. <laughs> yes. like it's it's the same thing they do. So I weirdly I went out and interviewed Cameron for the magazine. I can't even remember what it was. It would have been twenty. I want to say twenty sixteen, maybe. Might have been 2016. It was around that time. It was pre-pandemic. All time is meaningless before the pandemic. But um, he was already doing the volume work on this at Lightstorm. because so I interviewed him at Lightstorm uh, and he nipped across from the Avatar stage where he was shooting, not with principal cast, uh, but where he was shooting and uh, came and spoke to me for an hour or so. And he said, I've got to go back. You know, I've got a big tank of water that's waiting for me. So he was doing all that work there. So I guess they do, I think he does all of the volume work and then he does the set work because for avatar one i was on set for again the practical stuff in the base so the base was all like a practical set and all the human stuff and then obviously everything outside the base was completely created on the volume um it's it's a mad way of working i remember he used to talk about it so it's transformed what video village is because he has a 3d sort of roped off area with like so he can watch the rushes essentially in 3d so he can do his daily mm. stuff and he can look at it all in 3d just to see exactly what it will look like because he said like he's shooting in 3d he's making it for 3d so he can't really evaluate the rushes unless he sees them in 3d uh like he i mean he doesn't do anything by half measures he's like uh, mike ermantrout would be would approve but then that i mean that was kind of adopted by everyone else i think after the first film um that some of that at least you know but like i was on not a comparable film but jack the giant killer yeah. Jack the Giant Slayer. Slayer. Jack the Giant Slayer. Slayer. Right, yes. Yeah. So Jack the Giant Slayer. And he was, uh, Brian Singer on that film was was doing the same thing, was yeah. was watching as he went in sort of real-time rendering. So, I mean, this is one of the things that doesn't get talked about a lot with um, 
you know, the quote unquote cultural footprint of these films is the fact that they absolutely changed how films were made. Mm. Every time James Cameron does something since certainly <laughs> The Abyss, probably Terminator, yeah. um, he changes how films are made. He has, he has a huge, huge impact on on every other filmmaker around him for a start. Um, mm. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's pretty astonishing, wasn't it? Um, Spider basically had to shoot... Uh, all Everything his twice. scenes about three years on or something after the he first time He had to shoot around. them twice, didn't he? He had to yeah. do every shot, every shot twice um, in live action and then on the on the volume. Um, and the editing process is crazy as well. It's like yeah. he doesn't choose the shoot. He chooses later on. They kind of edit the whole film twice and decide later on, is it going to be a close-up? Is it going to be a crane shot? And they're literally... Because the way it works, and I remember this, because obviously he pioneered this way of shooting on the first film, but it was picked up as Helen says by everyone and Spielberg used it for Tintin. And when we were on set, mm -hmm. uh, when we did, we had a, when Spielberg guest edited the issue and we were, we went and saw him on the, on the volume where he was shooting Tintin and he showed me how the little thing works. It's like a little radio controlled car thing with a screen on it. So like Annie circus was out there, you know, Jamie Bell was out there. They were doing, you know, their stuff in the mocap outfits. And then you could with the sticks on the string, like as if you were controlling a little radio controlled helicopter, you could move the virtual camera around the space. So you can have whatever shot you want at whatever time you want. Mm. You can have it wide, you can pull in, you can do whatever and you can decide at any point because it's captured the entire 3d scene and then when you, where you choose to put that point of view that virtual camera you can do that at any point it's i mean it's mad absolutely mad it's incredible though mm. the complexity of what's happening here is is mind-boggling i've seen the film twice i saw it once uh, with you guys uh in 3d with the high frame rate and i saw it again last night in glorious 2d uh, and i know that i'm completely the outlier on this one but that's how i will i will be watching all 3d movies from now on I, it just doesn't work for me i just it's sure. not it's not a vision thing it's just a preference thing i i it doesn't do anything for me the immersiveness doesn't work for me uh i prefer things in just plain old-fashioned 2d i realize i'm very much in the minority when it comes to this movie on that but Nevertheless, the complexity and the the brilliance of the effects still works in two D. I mean, it's mm. glorious. The the skin textures, the water, mm. the 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 just the the intricacy of the images here, the compositing and everything. How you know how he puts stuff together. You know, only you know you're essentially watching for the most part of what ninety five, ninety six percent animated movie doesn't feel that way it's incredible to me and this happened with the first avatar and this is light years for me beyond what the the uh, what they were capable of doing in the first avatar mm. you watch these images and initially there's still the shock of oh this all feels a little cg within about five minutes you're like this is real mm. this is real they, they feel real there's a weight to them there's a gravity to them there's you know there the 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 detail of the emotions the detail of the expressions is absolutely extraordinary uh it's it's mind-blowing and it, that's i think one of the reasons why it feels so transportational um and why people want to go back to pandora again and again and again for me this feels like a a, a, a light years uh leap really from the first movie um but again Let's talk about the the film in a wider context before we get into all that stuff, because uh, that 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 sort of thing is just mind blowing for me. Uh, Jimbo and Helen, we haven't really had you on the movie itself yet. Wh where do you stand on on the way of water? I probably still prefer Avatar, if you know, but I there's very very little in it. But I just I felt like that's um, that had a clearer. 
beginning and end, I guess, because it, you know, had to be, it had to stand alone in case that was all there ever was. And I think this one, they were very confident that uh, a second one, a third one would come along. And obviously they'd already had the first one to set a lot of stuff up. So it's, it's harder, I think, to maybe tell a story as elegantly uh, in the second film. Um, in many cases, not all, of course, exceptions like aliens exist. But um, but yeah, no, I, I did love it. I thought the effects were a quantum leap up from the first one, which was already amazing. Going back to watch the first one after seeing this one, you know, you notice that the kind of supporting Navi do look a bit video gamey. And there's really none of that here when you when you look, you know, every every person on in the frame is fully realized to at least the standards of the first film I think you know so it's 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 an astonishing technological achievement mm. but also like it has incredible moments I think that that moment where the human ships return to Pandora has almost as much emotional impact as the destruction of home tree in the first film I think that last act is basically flawless um I think he is still one of the greatest action directors ever to have walked the planet so um I'm mm -hmm. definitely, definitely here for the third one. I have, I have nits to pick um, rather than major criticisms. I agree with you in that I only got cutscene syndrome a couple of times, and that was very, very early on. Where you're, uh, and 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 it was little things like incidental characters or little bits of movement. For for example, when they first get to the the uh, the island and they're they're climbing into their their little huts, there was a couple of moments I got where you're thinking, I'm watching the most expensive and brilliant video game ever for the most part that is gone and you're just immersed in the world and immersed in the performances and it's 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 really really quite exquisite i have to say jimbo um as someone who has very much wholeheartedly embraced 3d and high frame rate where do you stand on the film well well i mean you say that but i think i think what cameron did with the first avatar was show us what 3d was capable of in terms of elevating filmmaking to another level for certain types of filmmaking and then everyone jumped on a wagon you got a lot of filmmakers who i don't think really believed in 3d but because they could charge more for tickets they did conversions and 3d then became exactly what you think of it which is just like it was a chore and every time someone handed me a pair of 3d glasses before a film i was like oh fuck off like it just got really irritating and this now all these years later has made me realize that cameron is still the only person who does worthwhile 3d films like this for me was transportational in 3d when i saw it at the odeon west end which is the 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 cinema that he configured that lightstorm configured to show it then i saw it again at my local odeon again in 3d but i literally walked out twice during the film to complain to the manager that it was out of focus do you know what i mean like it's like it, it just and it matters like the detail matters and with the high frame rate if it isn't pin sharp you really notice it and other directors peter jackson has tried it uh you know ang lee has tried it high frame rate has been around but we don't like it we don't you know it, it goes against the grammar of cinema we've talked about this many times before on the podcast but what he does with this which is incredibly smart is the entire film is in 48 frames per second it, as in the way it's displayed but only certain scenes use 48 literal frames per second the rest of it is doubled up so you get two frames of each one so it's shot it's displayed at 20 uh, 48 frames but it's really you're still seeing a 24 frame experience and he saves the 48 frames for when it's really used so when they go underwater the reason it feels so so vivid so, so alive is because suddenly you're in 48 frames and you can see the detail and everything's so clear the second you go underwater he also uses it for some of the flying scenes but when they're just walking around the village and talking it's basically 
24 frames. And again, it's just the fact that he's a director who understands that. Who's not like, here, here's a new toy. Let's just use it. He knows when to use it. He knows when not to use it. Like it is a tool and he is an artist. And I just think, you know, it takes a very special type of filmmaker to have that kind of restraint and to know when to disp- the, to, to deploy it. But yes, I enjoyed the film. That should probably come across. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there are moments that are mind-blowing when the, I don't know if I'm using this word right, iridescence or the mm. sort of the, yeah. their bodies sort of, you see little bioluminescence, like, yeah. bioluminescent mm. bits and that's, scene where Kiri is like having her whatever you know not seizure but whatever whatever it actually yeah, is does, going on there these, yeah. when it goes when she her body goes dark and it's just little I, that just looks mind-blowing in in that yeah. uh in that but is it true that um there are different frame rates within the same shot sometimes mick scoresby alone is at 120 <laughs> at frames 60. per yeah, 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 that's right. yeah. Uh, yeah i think it, it varies because like i say like the whole thing is always in 48 but sometimes they're doubling frames and i i don't know exactly when and when not and i'm sure at some point maybe when the home amp release comes out we'll get a breakdown of everything from what i've gathered from what he said the underwater stuff is all 48 frames some of the flying stuff is 48 frames but i read i read someone saying that even within a single shot there's mm. things on the screen oh, that are in different very frame rates to other yeah very likely um, but the thing what's interesting is when we talked about 48 frames, like you look at Gemini Man, one of the biggest things with, with 48 frames, or that was actually shot in a higher frame rate than 48. That was, I can't yeah, even remember. 120 or something. Or yeah, 60, it was really, 60, really high. The problem with that is like like 24 frames covers a multitude of sins because it blurs things. So if you have slightly shonky effects, like that will help you out there. Whereas when you have a high frame rate, you can't hide anything. And something like Gemini Man, which just looked dreadful from top to bottom, it really showed that up. Because this film looks amazing, give it all the fucking frames you like, it's still going to look beautiful. So I actually don't think there's a downside. The aesthetic of the film as well, I think Hobbit didn't work because that world shouldn't be hyper real and it shouldn't, there's something misty and kind of ancient about it. And so I think it looked really, certainly for me, pulls you out of that world and doesn't feel right. Whereas for Avatar, where you've got a mixture of all this military, high-tech, mm. crazy futuristic stuff, and then an alien world, like it works perfectly. Mm. There were a couple of times anyway. for me where it did jar. Uh, you know, <laughs> I was a, I was a jarhead. Uh, just when you, you you got maybe I don't know whether it's because maybe they were, they were the transition between as James was saying doubling up on twenty four frames per second to actual forty eight frames per second. It did feel like there was a bit of motion blur, uh, but I, I, that wasn't there for the two D f- f- uh, viewing at all, obviously. Uh, but in the in my first 3D viewing, there were a couple of moments where it did jar for me. Uh, I did expect Cruise Macquarie to come in and turn off motion smoothing <laughs> on on the giant TV at one point. But you're right about the level of detail, Nick. I mean, it, you know, one of the big reasons why the first Avatar was the success that it was 2.9 billion. Now it was 2.7 back then, I think it was, and then it's it's added on an extra. 200 million over the years through various re-releases. One of the reasons why that movie was so huge, uh, cultural footprint aside, was that obviously Pandora was such a great thing for people and people wanted to go back and immerse themselves in Pandora. Now, you know, I watched the first one a whole bunch of times in the, in the cinema, less so on home, but certainly in the cinema. But I never had that reaction to Pandora. I was I was wowed by it. I was, I was dazzled by it, but I never really wanted to go there. That kind of changed for me uh, with this movie the the water stuff what's the what's the name of the the, the islands the where they go the actual islands well the tribe is the metkaina but okay uh, yeah i don't know the name of the atoll or whatever you want to call okay. it okay 
Um, but the, uh, the the Bora Bora of Pandora uh, looks <laughs> absolutely incredible. And uh, I was on the phone to a travel agent afterwards who said, fuck <laughs> off, mate. It's not a real place. Stop <laughs> bothering me. Leave me alone. Yes. And you don't have the money to go to Bora Bora. So don't yes. even think about that either. But I've got a whole jar of Amarita. It's worth 80 million a century from now. Amrita, incidentally, is a Sanskrit word, and it means uh, immortality. Oh, mm. that's nice. Uh, do you think fact. that's going to come into to play? I mean, there's a, there's a line from Scoresby. He says, this stops aging. I mean, it stops aging. Do you think that might well, be... So you think the, the third film will be all about cod liver oil pills? Yes, I think so. It might be. But, you know, that, 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 that seems to me they've, they've dispensed with the unobtainium. For the time being, although it seems clear that they're all they're still maybe after sun. They're still mining it. They're still yeah. mining it. But they're the human the human mission has changed this time around in that they're here now to colonize the the, the, the moon of Pandora and to, to turn it into, you know, Earth Mark Two. Um and this Amarita is is a nice little lucrative sideline. But do you think it might it might come into play? I mean that that line seemed so loaded down with weight for me. I feel like that's just to explain why it would be very, very valuable. So, you know, on, on Earth, people killed whales um, just for the extract to make perfume from, right? So they, they would... God, we're awful, aren't we? I think it is, isn't it? No, but they, 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 they would kill an entire whale just to get this like little lump of verdigris and I think the stomach or the bile duct or something. Um, so I think he's trying to create a very exact parallel with that and, and say, look, we're going to kill this gigantic animal for this tiny thing. Yeah. And then it becomes a question of, well, why? What would be worth that much on an alien world to, you know, to bring back to Earth? And it, it would have to be something along the lines of stopping aging, wouldn't it, for, for super rich people? This may be the only part of the film that I thought was unnecessary, because I thought we'd already established there's this incredibly valuable resource. I thought, did we need a new one? And also the colonizing thing just made no sense to me. I was like, they established in the first film, this is the most hostile environment like known to humanity. And the only reason they come there is because this, the most valuable resource in the universe is there. If they found Pandora, surely there is somewhere less shit than Pandora that the human race can go to <laughs> where everything isn't trying to kill you. I'm just saying. I wonder if that means that they're, they're sort of setting up a terraforming uh, yeah. thread. I mean, obviously he has he has prior with terraforming and aliens. Shaken bait colonies. Um, yeah, so maybe maybe that becomes an even more existential struggle for for existence between the two races as the series goes on. Yeah, because yeah. presumably the Navi can't breathe uh, largely oxygen. No, but they can breathe it longer than we can breathe Navi. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So that that would be bad. Uh, Nick, you have a theory, don't you? About because we know there's at least three more. <laughs> It's not. It's a, it's a, it's a mad random thought, but yeah, I wonder if we might at some point in this series see re reverse avataring, and we might see a Navi go into a human body. I think there's been a suggestion of that from uh, from Cameron. I think there's been there's been oh. talk of Neytiri on Earth. Um, yeah, at least. I, I saw them saying. I saw. I saw. I saw him suggesting the Navi will come to Earth, but yeah, hmm. will you see Natari going into like Zoe Saldana's body? Oh, I see. Interesting. Don't know. Hmm. You could do it. You could do it. Would make sense. Mm. They released a comic which was like a space battle. Did you see this? Because the original script for Avatar 2 featured them battling with RDA in space as they returned to Pandora uh, and then realized that that just wasn't the story he wanted to tell. But so I guess there's lots and lots of ideas that are still out there that may or may not make it into one of the sequels. Mm. Um, mm. So your reverse avataring could happen. Yeah. And there's a rumour, of course, next time it'll be a sort of fire tribe. So That's presumably right, yeah. whatever the volcanic um, people, Pacific yeah. Rim of Pandora is, we'll be, <laughs> we'll be heading off that way. Led by David Foulis. Yeah. 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 
They can meet a, a wind tribe, a windy tribe. Mm. <laughs> Ava, Ava fart. I don't know. Anyway, yes. listen. Oh, um, no. shall we? <laughs> I know James didn't really want to do this that much, but I feel you can't discuss Avatar: The Way of Water without discussing the backlash about against Avatar: The Way of Water, which. Um, I'd say unusually for most movies, but usually for a James Cameron movie, happened before the movie came out, Mm. uh, where a lot of people once again had made their minds up about this movie. I know people who refuse to see this film, you know, who have declared that there is no interest in this movie, that it was going to stiff, it was going to flop, who were almost even celebrating its opening weekend, which was not earth shattering, but, you know, it's displayed those Cameronian legs again, hasn't it? And mm. it, it, you know, and there were people who were queuing up to give this thing one star reviews, which you suspect that were maybe mm. kind of half written before they saw the film. And I also, I don't understand. You can have lots of problems with Avatar: The Way of Water. You can have problems with the storytelling. You can have problems with some of the character work. But I don't know how anyone can look at this and go, "That's a one star movie." Yeah, this is filmmaking on a level the likes of which we have rarely seen before. I yeah. do not understand it. Sorry, it Robbie Collins. <laughs> I'm not talking about. I'm not naming any names. No names were. No I love names Robbie. Were, He's a great guy, but he has never been more wrong in his life. No names were harmed during the making of this podcast, uh, or indeed even said. But uh, all that aside, um, mm. there was a controversy about this. There was a backlash. People had written this movie off yet again. We kept saying on the podcast, "Do not write off James Cameron." Uh, you, you, you always bet on two things in this life: black and James Cameron. Absolutely. Look, I think he's had this for um, certainly every film since Titanic, and I think to an extent with T2, where there were a lot of stories about how massive the budget was and you know the general Karolko excess of the era. Um, so it's it's it must be almost normal for him now. But I think it's still actually very difficult to an extent for him as a filmmaker to to get through some of the, you know, not when he's promoting the film, but some of the interviews when he goes back and looks at these things afterwards. I think it's. It's been very, very difficult, especially on, I think, Titanic. I think people had really written that one off and then, you know, it was Titanic. So, yeah, it's it's happened again here. It seems to happen every single time. And I think it's just because he is such a singular filmmaker and he does have such a weird um, place in the film lexicon because he doesn't have the sort of obsessive online fandom defending his honour that you get with a Zack Snyder or any Batman property. You know, you, you, like he doesn't have Marvel. these people who will pick fights with anyone who criticises him. Um, he, he, His fans seem to react in a very different way for everyone else's fans. They just get on with their lives and then turn up for his next film. <laughs> right? I mean, for the most part, even the people who are, who are, you know, getting themselves tattooed as Navi and who are uh, learning Navi, they still don't particularly engage. They're just like, okay, well, you think that and I'll go and see the film when it comes out. So it it's always this same controversy. It's always the same discussion. And the whole name three characters in Avatar thing, name three characters in Mission Impossible, not you, Chris. <laughs> like, people can't do that either. Name me four characters in Transformers who aren't Transformers. You Ooh. can't do it. Oh, I could do that. You, and you can only name the Transformers because you played with them as a kid, not That's because true. you remember them accurate. from these films. You know? It's a nonsense. It's a non-argument. It's a, it's a straw man set up to attack this film because... It doesn't feel cool because your granny also went to see it. I can name four Avatar characters. 
Of course. Uh, although can. I can never I can never remember if it's Parker Selfridge or Carter Selfridge. It's Parker, Parker. Selfridge, but it was originally Carter Selfridge. That's actually true. It was in the scriptment as Carter Selfridge. Yes. Yeah. But then he became Parker Selfridge and yeah. uh and we were all glad to see him back in this movie. Uh, <laughs> for his one scene. Uh, for for his eleventh billing, uh, Giovanni <laughs> Rabisi. Uh but the CCH Pounder, who who mm -hmm. plays grandmother, Moat. is that right? Yeah. Is she it's, plays a grandmother? She's yeah, yeah, yeah. She's yeah. she's Natari's mother. One scene. Yeah. Sixth billing. So I think CCH Pounder's agent is better than Giovanni Ribisi's agent. That's hey, the thing ooh. I'm taking away. If you have away. CCH Pounder in your film, you put her up top 100% always because she's amazing. Well, speaking of characters who are back from the first movie, that brings us neatly on to Quaritch. Mm. The return mm. of Miles Quaritch, but uh, this time he's feeling a little blue, as he says roughly himself. And, uh, and his son, Spider, who in this movie makes the worst decision made in a movie by a character called Spider since Michael Imperioli told Joe Pesci to go fuck himself in Goodfellas. Uh, so what do we make of that? So there's a whole thing, the Spider... Like we, we're, for example, we're not told that Spider, in, in Jake's voiceover, that Spider is the son of Miles Quaritch, which seems like pertinent information until <laughs> until quite uh, about half an hour in, just after Quaritch gets reintroduced. But what did you make of that that relationship, that, that dynamic? My favourite part of the film, actually. Genuinely. Really? I, I, yeah, and I, I was very sceptical about bringing Quaritch back as a villain. I was like, really? Are we doing this again? But actually, and look, I know that I'm possibly playing to type, I'm going to stand for the villain in this, oh, but gosh. I just thought his arc in this was fantastic because I thought Quaritch in the first film was a little bit one note. He seemed just like just overtly malignant and i think this one ironically that he's now a navi this humanized him to an extent where he's still a very problematic character he is by no means a heroic character but he became relatable he became complex he became an actual sort of rounded human character with complex feelings to a child who is his but isn't his like there's a lot going on there that he's quaritch but he's not quaritch and this son is his but it's actually not his and how he feels about that and i thought it was interesting seeing the trajectory he took I and mean, he was still doing things like setting villages on fire which is just for future reference terrible parenting um, burn the hooches indeed burn the hooches and spider's like what are you doing but I, I i loved all that stuff with him and i thought i thought uh slang played it perfectly they don't give it away till quite late in the day that he's feeling got he's got those feelings like i think it's quite ambiguous all the way through the film yeah. of of whether he actually cares about this this kid or not and then at the end it's like a reveal that he does and and that's like a really excellent moment on the on the ship when they're all yeah. holding knives to each other i cut um, i love Quaritch. <laughs> I, I i agree he's a bit one note in the first film but it's the greatest note ever played um <laughs> stephen lang is majestic in this I, I i love his villain and i didn't think he was quite as fun in this one Quaritch. um you know he doesn't have all the great one-liners and stuff he has a couple of good the, what does he say about marines regrouping in hell that's an amazing line you can kill us um, but we'll just regroup in hell which which it seems problematic because that, that seems to acknowledge that they are the bad guys because if you're if, yeah. what would you be doing in hell yeah interestingly when i interviewed slang for the first film i i said to him like as you know great villains i genuinely don't believe they're the villain they everyone's the hero of their own story and he was oh, like no no yeah. he's like he says quaritch 100 percent knows he's the villain and i thought that yeah. was a really interesting character observation of his he's like quaritch is a complete asshole and he knows it and he loves it and he doesn't care yeah, he's he'll have a nice cup of coffee while he while mm. he nukes places. Um, yeah, he he adjusts surprisingly 
easily to the fact that he's now trapped inside the body of something he absolutely hates and has spent however many years trying to kill mm. like he did there's no moment of uh you know existential thing he just gets on with it and he's sort of having fun uh the, the scene with that the surprised skull me. is where he crushes his own skull is basically hamlet but better um <laughs> it's a great moment yeah i love that yeah shakespeare would agree with you uh, Cameron won Shakespeare. If he'd nil. written it, he would obviously. Absolutely. Oh, oh, hello, hello. Oh boy. Hello. Navi or not to Navi? Yeah, arrows fired. Yeah, daggers drawn. Uh, yeah, I I love that scene. I mean, there's so much going on there. You know, the the idea of watching your own death and you're in a new body and mm. then finding your own corpse, but now you're in a bigger, better body and you can just crush your head. I mean, the the symbolic impact of that. Um, and also as a Kids in the Hall fan, I enjoyed the head crushing. But yeah, that was just, that was just wild. There's so much going on there. Like, so what do you think about this this iteration of Quaritch, uh, Helen? Mm. What do you think? Do you think that this is, because there, there, you know, he, we, he goes out of his way several times to say, I am not Miles Quaritch. I am something else. I am a recombinant. I am, I am, I am new Quaritch 2.0. Um, and that seems to me to be leaving maybe the door ajar for a, a Fader-esque redemption down the line, or what do we think? I think if he's going to be around for five films, I think we're going to see at least elements of, of that, aren't we? We're going to see at least... Mm. Um, at least him being tempted to be redeemed, if that makes sense. You know, at least a temptation to embed himself a, a little bit more on Pandora, because I think there is that possibility now in a way that there wasn't with Quaritch 1.0. Um, this Quaritch, especially having been tutored by Spider, who was of course also taken in by Neytiri and, and Jake. And it is really interesting that they they hide his parentage for the first part. They just talk about basically, yeah, we've adopted him as well because he just hangs out with our kids. And and there's an open-heartedness on their part, at least on Jake's part. Neytiri obviously has serious concerns um, <laughs> about that that kind of gesture and about taking him in and about letting him hang out with their weans. Um, but there's also a sort of, he has then been brought up in their mindset. He's been brought up much more, you know, allied with them than he is with his fellow humans. And so there is that possibility possibility now. There is that connection in a way that there wasn't before. Quaritch was learning about the stuff that Jake was telling him as a completely academic, uh, strategic exercise. This Quaritch is up there connecting with animals and going for a fly. You know, that has to change you. That has to be a different relationship that you then have with that planet. The fact that he can just go out without a mask and, well, for longer than he held his breath in the first film and hmm. just walk around, that has to change your relationship. And I actually thought we'd see maybe a bit more of that in this film. We might see him, you know, beginning to, to soften or be tempted hmm. by Pandora in a way that we haven't yet. But I do feel like that's almost inevitably in his future if he is going to be around through the f full run of these films. Mm. It's interesting also from the other point of view, like Spider's relationship with Quaritch, because obviously Quaritch is everything Spider hates. And yeah. yet they, I think Cameron really dials into, he understands that there's a fundamental need from a child to connect with a parent, no matter how awful they are. Even if he does it despite himself, like he's, he's drawn to him and he can't almost stop himself. And you see that at the end when he saves him. He doesn't mm. want to, but he kind of feels like he has to. And then and almost he hates hiss. himself for it, hisses at him and then dives into the sea. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be awkward if when if if and when Natiri finds out that 
he saved. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. <laughs> Although it's not Quaritch that actually kills Netiam, is it? It's it's just a sort of unidentified yeah, bullet. bullet. Yeah, because mm. yeah. I think if it had been Quaritch who had who had fired yeah. that bullet, then yeah, I don't think there's any. You know, but maybe we'll get more Quaritch well, in the next Quaritch one. Quaritch did blow up half, like most of her tribe. So yeah. I think she has. He, he destroyed her yeah. tree and, yeah. and and killed her father in the process. So and he killed a lovely Iwi. Yeah. Poor Iwi. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's not a, he's not a good dude. But yeah, this the spider relationship. Uh, we've got some listener questions. I know some people were a little bit perplexed by that, or certainly confounded by his decision that he makes uh, at the end. Uh, and it's it's a you know spider is not meant to be you know an unimpeachable character. He's a kid who's who's prone to making bad decisions. But you see how desperately he craves his father's attention and approval uh, all the way through the the film. That yeah, uh, yeah I think it's a really really bold thing for Cameron to do because I, I, I one of the things is Cameron has talked an awful lot about <laughs> he's not he's you get some you get some I can't talk about that plot stuff with Cameron when you talk about the Avatar movies but he's also quite open about stuff which is interesting you don't get that straight bat I'm sorry I've signed a dozen terrifying NDA things that you get when you talk to people about Marvel movies, for example, where it says, you know, oh, wait until you see the movie on February 14th or, or something. You don't get that with him. He's quite open about the fact that Quaritch will be in all five of these movies. He's quite open about the fact that Jake and the Teary go all, all, go all the way to the end, which is interesting because it does not automatically remove tension from, from the film or, or not. Well, we don't know that it's the same Quaritch. Quaritch died and came back, so you don't know if it's this iteration is going to make it to the end or not. Could be a totally different one. True. True. Possible. We could have multiple Quaritches. Um, but I was just going to say as well, this is the guy who put the, the reveal that Arnie is a goodie in Terminator 2 in the trailer. You yeah. know, So I think he's less precious about plots than maybe some others, because he yeah, knows he that's is. not the primary reason that people go to his films. They don't go for the M. Night Shyamalan twist. They go for the immersion in these new yeah. worlds and for the adventure itself, rather than just the individual moments. We know I the think. boat is going to sink. We Indeed. did know the boat was going to sink. I, actually, apparently, if some people didn't because they'd never heard of the real event, but <laughs> most of us did. Most of us knew the boat was going to sink, and then they once they saw the boat was going to sink, they went back again and again and again and again and again. Uh, and you know, there's so much to talk about with this movie. We've got so many listener questions. Uh, <laughs> I do be only scratch the surface with this one, but there's 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 a couple of other things I wanted to talk about. Um, one is Cameron's past really begins to play out the last 45 minutes of this movie feels like it's now that's what i call james cameron volume three and i'm <laughs> totally fine with that because i think the the mm -hmm. the last hour of this movie is as absolutely terrific but there are obvious shades of titanic there are shades of some set pieces from his previous movie the, the moment when, when when the took gets sucked into by the by the water she gets swept away by the water and falls down the the manhole uh feels a lot like newt being swept yep. away and, and aliens mm. there's there's little moments that are redolent of films uh and moments from his past it feels like cameron is doing cameron in a in a weird way what about you guys what do you what do you think about that i feel like that's everywhere throughout the whole of the film i felt you know he is the father of a large family and now so is his so are his leads you know he is um someone who has uh you know 
had different relationships in his past, and so there's a blended family. It's not a simple biological family. Um, he's someone who's fascinated with the with the sea and with diving. So now let's go to the sea and let's go diving. You know, the whole of it feels like mm. ultimate James Cameron. And the Abyss, I would say, is absolutely in that final um, final act as well. Yep. I, I mean, again, not complaining. Nope, Love it. Not complaining but, at all. But it is really fascinating where he goes next, given how much of himself is in this film. I'm really fascinated by that. Yeah. Yeah, this also hits similar beats to the first film. When I, My first viewing of this, I was surprised by how familiar many of the beats were to the point where one of the set pieces like one of the um i don't know what it's like the sea shark thing is 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 coming for loak and you're like, this is almost feels like a shot for shot when jake is running away from the the thanator and you're mm. just like it, it, a lot of it did feel very familiar and just the, the the tonal thing like he's a fish out of water <laughs> in this case kind of literally and uh, you know he's coming to a new culture he's coming to adapt to the culture it did feel very familiar but i don't think it was to the film's detriment and i don't think the references to his other work you know whether conscious or not and they may not be uh conscious. you know I don't yeah, consciously indeed. Uh, I don't think it was uh it you know, it it was it, you know, provided for sort of a rich material quarich material to draw upon. So <laughs> they good. use um they use the same music cue when the mummy Tolkien dies to when Home Tree comes down. Mm, um, yeah. yeah. Uh yeah, I think it was very deliberate. I think that it's not I it felt like he wasn't assuming that everyone had been was completely familiar with the first film, so it felt like there were points where it was kind of deliberately kind of repeating itself almost. That musical cue isn't that that James Horner classic that kind of that you get. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, you get it in Willow, you get it in The Wrath of Khan. What a hack! It, but it's amazing. It's, <laughs> no, it still works. I'm saying it still works, and it's a, it's at this point it's a tribute to James Horner, obviously. Yeah. So it is, yes. I, I I love that it was in there, but um, but yet yeah, uh, it just it just literally rang bells for me when I heard it. It's like hey, it literally rang bells for you. We were literally talking before we started uh, Tolkien. Sorry, uh, before we started. Um, recording this about you know films and cinemas about the stuff on tv about stuff that you know should be in cinemas and like the blurring the lines between home entertainment and cinematic entertainment and more than anything else like this is cinema do you know what i mean like this like you watch this you're like this is why cinemas exist like you know you take the fablemans think what you like about the film you know but you could enjoy that film in a number of different mediums like, this feels like a film you have to see in the cinema like absolutely at least for the first to. time yeah a hundred percent and yet it's, I think it's really interesting Cameron's approach to this movie because, yeah, there's a lot of things that touch upon the first film or even feel like recreations of the first film. And I get that. If your first film makes as much money as it has made <laughs> and it's connected with as many people as it's connected with, you're going to make them want to feel at home, right? You know, so that all that early stuff. And, you know, I love one of Jake's first lines is, you know, as as dangerous as Pandora is, the thing is you 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 fall in love with it. And that feels like a a line that was specifically aimed at millions of people out there. Uh, it's like, you know, don't worry, guys, we're going back to Pandora. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. It's going to be fine again. But then what's interesting about it is that this this actually becomes more intimate than epic, I would say. And it's it mm. becomes a, a character piece. Like, the, I did not expect, for example, if you had sat me down beforehand and said, Chris, what do you think the 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 last act of The Way of Water is going to be? I would thought, well, it's going to be a massive water battle. It's going to, when, it, when it is, but it's going to be a huge water battle between all the tribes of, like the like, like first movie, all the tribes of of Pandora and all the animals are rising up in revolt against their human oppressors once again. It's going to be like that, only this time with a bit a bit of um, you know H two O splashing around. It'd be wetter, mm. yeah. It's going to be a bit Literally. wetter. Wetter are going to make it wetter. That's what that's what's going to happen. <laughs> Instead, what happens is you get a much more intimate, family based struggle uh, on a sinking mm. ship. Uh, that is looks amazing, but 
doesn't involve you know big itchers or or or, or programs with thousands of computer orcs computer generated yeah. orcs and I, I thought it was really interesting that he he's 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 gone the opposite way for me I love that it went quieter at the end. I really, I love that last stretch. And um, one of my favorite moments is when uh, Loak is reciting the way of water to his dad to like help Mm. him calm him down and slow his heartbeat. And the stuff with the glowing, um, I don't know what they are. Fairy wings. I mean, fairy (laughs) wings. Jellyfish. Yeah. Yeah. The little yellow, the trail of of magical Mm. jellyfish is so cool. I mean, Mm. and it's, and it's just quiet and slow and, Mm. and, kind of beautiful music in that sequence as well but that that bit you're talking about when he recites the way of water to him i really like that because it the theme of this this whole thing is that his kids have adapted to the metkaina they have embraced the way of water in a way that he and very much natiri who let's be honest still rides a banshee she hasn't in any way attempted to assimilate and jake has to an extent like the kids are into it they can hold their breath like they can do all these things uh in a way that their parents can't. So it's like the kids then take over and it's that interesting passing of the torch dynamic. I like I like that. I thought it worked very well. Yeah, I thought that was really clever because I think that's what happens, right? You, you, your kids, you know, are very soon teaching you how to work the remote and teaching you how to play the game or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, like it happens to water. <laughs> people in the world. Um, I like that. I, I didn't like that we didn't see more of Natiri on that. I wanted to understand, has she been... Has she basically excluded herself from this narrative and decided mm. that she doesn't need to train on these animals? Can she already basically do that? And it's no big deal that she just has other things going on. Is she depressed about leaving yeah, her I home? Think that's it. Is yeah. that why she's been sort of isolating herself a little bit? Like it felt like there's at least a scene missing, yeah. kind of explaining that for me. Well, more than that, for me, actually, I, I, I think it's fascinating that we don't really see, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this. We don't see her in the water until the very end of the mm. movie, and then she embraces it completely. And I think it's a it's a very interesting point that you're making. But at the end, whenever they are they're all heading out to try and stop Quaritch and Scoresby, everyone else goes straight into the water. She jumps on the banshee and and takes to the sky. There's a rejection from her of the Medkayina culture, even though she at times is you know very much we must respect their traditions, we must respect their culture. But at times, it feels like a rejection of it. There's part of Unless that that's the- strategic. Eyes in the sky, but they're all—they're all capable of flying. So, and they fly—they I mean, fly, they not fly very pretty high much over immediately. The water. True, but uh, yeah. Anyway, she's 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 not shown in the water. Is is no, is something that, that that we we see all the way during that that middle section. Now, I really like this movie, but the middle section is at times I did zone out a couple of times, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Like I say, I wanted to book my my trip there right away. I wanted David Attenborough to be narrating. Blue Planet Pandora <laughs> edition. Uh, it was absolutely exquisite. But we know that there was a much longer version of this movie circulating not until not too long ago. That you know, Cameron even said this in the in the podcast interview we did with him, which you can go to listen to now if you haven't. This one hour of James Cameron talking about his career and an Avatar and the Way of Water, and it's 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 amazing. But he talked about that. He talked about you know having to having to cut things down and and you know i think there was a probably at one point there was the rumors that there was a four hour cut of this movie and not the assembly cut that you know you sometimes hear there was a four four and a half hour version of insert the name of your favorite movie here and we never got to see this and this and this and this and this but that's the assembly cut that so that's usually never even remotely considered for release the understanding here is that there was a cut that Cameron was toying with releasing that was close to four hours long that I'm sure would have 
filled in some scenes, maybe given Natiri more to do. I don't think she gets an awful lot to do. Maybe would have filled in some of the blanks. There's some slight choppiness for me to the storytelling in that middle section where they're where the kids are learning to bond on the uh, on the on the reef. We don't really see Jake and Natiri that much. There's some stuff. There's some intercut between Quaritch and Spider and the kids and uh, and. Loak and Payakan and they're bonding and there's some slightly choppy intercutting there. There's one there's one scene that made me think, oh, there's been a lot more here that, that's been that's been cut. Uh and perhaps this is something that they couldn't quite finesse this cut. But there's a scene where uh Loak has bonded with Payakan and I cannot believe we're over an hour into this podcast we haven't talked about the fact that there's a fucking talking whale in this movie that has, that has a backstory and a flashback and all that sort of stuff we should talk about that in, in like literally five minutes uh, yeah. because it's, it's incredible but Loak has found out Pycan's backstory and is saying to Cliff Curtis look mate I don't care how cool you were in training day I'm not having it uh, <laughs> so, so bug off mate and and Jake goes over to him and goes, right. And he grabs him and he physically takes him away from the meeting. And he goes, I'm going to deal with this. And the very next cut is to Loak and Soraya. So we never see the resolution of the Jake scene. My suspicion is that it and a number of scenes were cut from the middle of the movie. That maybe the middle of the movie was too ponderous to wane things down a little bit too much. Um, so that's just my suspicion. I've no, I've no, mm. nothing to, to, to base that on except... The middle of the middle of the movie's a bit saggy for me. Yeah, there's a lot of learning to ride fish, a lot of fish riding tutorials, <laughs> which is all beautifully rendered. It looks incredible, and you know, Kiri sitting in the water looking at stuff floating past her. You know, when she should probably be helping out people who are in trouble is 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 wonderful. It's great, and we haven't even talked about the fact that Sigourney Weaver is playing we a fucking teenager Kiri. in this movie. But Jesus Christ, this thing's before mad. Before we talk about Kiri, I do think we should talk about the whale. And this again, I did a proper double take, as I'm sure you all did. That we go from him talking at a whale in the same way that people talk to Lassie to suddenly getting feedback from the whale with subtitles. Like, I'm sorry. When did you learn to speak whale? How did this happen? All of a sudden. I, I did, yeah. And there's no moment where he realised he's like surprised. No, it's he's just like, oh, like I they start chatting. Whale. Hello, mm. I can speak whale. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dory has so much to teach us. <laughs> it feels it feels a little bit like this has Empire Strikes Back time frame syndrome a little bit mm. in that uh, Jake and the Teary and the kids are in the the uh, the reef, the island reef, for what seems like weeks. Meanwhile, Quaritch and Spider are searching for them in what yeah. seems like days. Yeah, uh, but yeah. I'm sure it's all totally fine, totally fine. Anyway, there's a talking but fucking whale. Pi- yeah, uh, yeah. I, there's no moment where it comes to think it. There's no moment in this film where anyone is surprised by the talking whale. And given like none of the other animals talk on Pandora that we know of, I don't know. It might be a scene with a chatty Vanator in the extended edition. But, um, yeah, you'd think somebody would be surprised by it. But um, they're all like talk about him like he's a like he's a human. You know, he's a rogue. He's a rogue element. But I love Pyacan. Yeah. He's the MVP. Come but on. they're supposed He's to be amazing. super smart. We get that, don't we? Like even Scoresby tells us that. Like they're very, very intelligent. So I get that the Metkaina can commune with the whales. But it makes no sense that Loak can suddenly do it. Like that's that's they have their own it philosophy, we're told. He- bonds with it doesn't it because once he's bonded with it maybe that could have accounted for it but it happens before then that you get the subtitles so that that really does make no sense to me at all it's uh yeah doesn't uh jermaine or ian ian jarvis what's he called jarv garvin garvin ian garvin yes he he says that they have poems and uh Mm. philosophy which i hope we get some more of (laughs) 
Kate Winslet talks about her her buddy being or her sister being mm. a composer That's of right. great songs. So you know they have art, they have culture. Um, they just you know swim around all day, not showing it off. Can't believe we talked about a talking whale, and at no point did any one of us say, "Look, who's Tolkien." <laughs> I'm pretty sure somebody used that as a squad cast name when we discussed yeah. the film. Someone right? here is you talking to me? Who is that? That's me. I think it was. Yeah, me. Okay, yeah I thought it might be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was look who's talking when we did the review. Okay. <laughs> this is like Free Willy. If at the end of Free Willy, Willy ripped someone's arm out of its socket, and <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, because he's a very mellow creature yeah, until, until he's, he's not, not. <laughs> and then he's just a mayhem machine. Yeah, they're pacifists, pacifist whales. But because Pyacan has been excluded, uh, it's too painful. What happened to you? And he just blinks and goes. <laughs> and it, the, subti- the subtitle, the subtitle was the moment where, when it comes up. It goes, "It's too painful," and a, a whale suddenly is having a dialogue scene in this movie. I thought uh, that's the moment when Robbie Collins' pen started. <laughs> <it's completely one-star. laughs> not to name any names, oh, of course. Name. Not to name any names, of course. I will redact that from the uh, from the podcast. No, we love Robbie. He's a he's a lovely guy and very tall, very very tall <laughs> very indeed. Tall. Maybe maybe like the, I, maybe his height. Yeah, maybe he couldn't see the screen properly. He was too high uh, <laughs> above it, and therefore he wasn't experiencing it in the way that James Cameron intended. That's that's my theory. That's what I'm going with. But yeah, that's the moment where I thought the people who are uh, the people who are Pandora agnostic or Pandora skeptics are not going to like the talking well. They're not going to like it. <laughs> it's it's a it's a flex. Mm. It really is. It's a flex. I like it. Look, it it's. I mean, it's crazy, and it did throw me for a second. But, you know, if you're talking, if you're making an environmentalist parallel, if you are trying to draw attention to the, you know, fucked upness of Earth, you can't do much better than the Save the Whale campaign. And the Save the Whale campaign, you know, was was based around the idea that these are very smart creatures. They are very, very bright. Um, so he's just taking it that little tiny bit further. That's great. Totally no problems with it whatsoever. Yeah. If we can if we can buy Robert Downey Jr. talking to the animals in Doolittle. Then we could buy. We could buy. And a I'm whack. sure we all did. We did. We did. I mean, who did? Who, who who can forget that movie? Who wants to remember that movie? Anyone put your hand up if you would like to remember that movie. <laughs> Name any character who wasn't Doctor Doom. Michael Sheen as himself. Uh, <laughs> Nick. Nick as the world's foremost and perhaps only Mick Scoresby Stan. Were you upset when his arm was ripped from his body by by the Tolkien Pyacan? Or uh, does this now mean that you want to see the Tolkien pay for his crimes in Avatar Three? I was I was saddened by it until um, we interviewed John Landau for the, our new issue, and he revealed exclusively that Mick Scoresby will be back, uh, presumably <laughs> with some kind of bionic Terminator arm <laughs> with a harpoon and a gun attached to it. Um, but yes. Uh, I enjoyed that. He's he's someone you um, you love to see limbs being ripped off of because he's just a twat. Um, a <laughs> Major blood twat. loss is not a, an issue for him. I mean, he's going to be in that water, swimming around in circles, and he's going to be losing blood. Maybe he drank the little jar of Amrita and it healed him and it grew, <gasps> it grew his arm back. Mm. Maybe mm. it did. Maybe it did. Crazy. Oh my god, that's incredible. Um, I want to talk about some other characters in this in this movie other than Mick Scoresby, but uh, Kitty. But uh, I want to talk very quickly about Jermaine and not just the accent, mm. because there are people who are out there who will not know him as Jermaine Clement and they'll be just like, oh, that's a dude doing an American accent or an American dude. That's just that's fine. But for us, it just it was weird and wrong. And can you correct it for the 
DVD release. Uh, please, thank you very much indeed. The character, that uh, character Ian Garvin, has an arc that doesn't quite come to fruition in the way that you would expect. You know, mm. traditionally, you know, he's the 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 scientist with a conscience who's betrayed himself in a way to work with these guys. You know, he's in order to get closer to study the Tolkien. He's turning a blind eye to the horrors that they're they're uh, perpetrating. Uh, on, on a daily basis and you expect that to come to fruition in a kind of I'm going to stand up alongside the Navi and stand up against the the the, the horrible the horrors uh, that are being wrought here it doesn't quite happen in fact we, he kind no. of just disappears doesn't he what, what, do you think there was something there or do you think that we'll see more of him in, in Avatar 3 I think we'll just see more of him we'll definitely see more of him because I think Michelle Yeoh has been confirmed as playing a marine biologist as well um, in the subsequent ones. So I, this wow. feels like a case where they're kind of putting seeds down for stuff that's happening in the next one. We've also seen an image of Edie Falco's uh, Ardmore. What's her rank? General Ardmore? General, I think, yeah. Um, General, we've yeah. seen an image, a behind-the-scenes image of her in some kind of underwater, underwater thing that wasn't in this film. So I suspect there'll be quite a bit more water action mm. coming up. Also, isn't okay. one of the, the sequels apparently called The Tolkien Rider? So I think there's going to be a lot of oceanic stuff to come. Yeah. All right. So, so Ian Kowak, was, presumably. Yeah, presumably. Yeah, you'd think. Uh, as opposed to his uh, dead brother, whose character name I totally know. <laughs> Netayam. There we go. Netayam. Yes. Net- Can you Netayam. name the little one? Who Tuk, I keep thinking is called Blinky. Took. <laughs> Should have been called Blinky. <laughs> took can play at that game. That's what I say. Uh, yeah. No, took, but uh, but the 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 yeah the brothers. I didn't really get a grasp on their names. If I'm if I'm honest with you, um, uh, now I think about Natayam is mentioned repeatedly, but Loak, I'm not sure. But, There's a uh, lot of Loak. They're always telling Loak off. Yeah. Are they? He, I think I got, I got his first. name first. It took me longer N- with Natayam. Okay. Took, took is the one I can never remember. Um, but yeah. I think Loak is going to turn out to be the talker. Do you guys know the title, the apparent titles that were they were no, kind of please tell annou- me. They were annou- they weren't announced, but they were leaked leaked years ago. And uh, two was Way of Water, so that did turn out to be right. And apparently, part three is going to be called the Seed Bearer. That's an unfortunate mm-hmm. title. That's, let's not go with that. Part four, the Tolkien Rider, and part five, the Quest for Awa. I think part five should be called Ooh. Mick Scoresby's Wet and Wild. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a reason you don't name these things, Chris. <laughs> I mean, it can't be worse than the seed bearer, can I? Yeah, but that feels like that's a Kiri reference, doesn't it? Like, because it feels like we haven't talked about Sigourney as Kiri, but it mm. feels like there's a big old A, capital B, capital D, big destiny uh, in store for her. Can I give you my big, like, you know, galaxy brain theory for Go this on. series? I think she's the avatar. I think she's an av- the av- oh, she pretty much is the avatar of Awa. I think yeah. she's the avatar. She's going to end oh. up the avatar of the title. Oh, what? She's yeah. she is literally a personification of Awa. Well, Awa's yeah. definitely her quote unquote father. So, yeah. okay. I think she's yeah. Obviously, she's got some magical magical stuff going on. I wonder if the seed bearer might. Uh, I don't know. I, I this is coming out of absolutely nowhere, but. Might the Navi leave Pandora and try to start again somewhere else? And might there be some kind of seed to grow a new planet? Have we established um, are, there's nowhere else in the universe? Otherwise, the humanity wouldn't be coming to Pandora. Well, if you have Awa helping you, uh, that's true. That is true. A, they didn't have Awa on their side. I do wonder if there might be a reversal of fortunes coming here, and that maybe, maybe 
What do you think of number five is? The Quest for Awa. Hmm. The Quest for Awa. I wonder if Earth might end up being the new Pandora, ultimately. Hmm. Uh, and Awa might somehow Pandora form that planet and yeah. turn it into a, into hmm. a new paradise So after mankind has done its thing and fucked up another planet. Didn't Awa used to make Walkmans in the 80s? It's all very confusing. <laughs> what? <laughs> Maybe they're looking for a Walkman in part five. So maybe it would make sense then if the seed bearer, let's call her Kiri, but like whoever, goes off in this next one, mm-hmm. and then everybody else basically finds out what's happening in the fifth. Yes. You're thinking that? Yeah. But if, if you're saying that the humans, sorry, the Pandorans, sorry, the Navi go to uh, Earth in four, is that what Cameron said? He said a couple of things. He said that in four, I think he said in four, that there's a time jump. Yeah. So he said that one of the reasons he shot all his, the kid actors out, so their scenes are done, uh, and so they're going to be in, in three, and they're going to be in part of four, and then he said there's something like a six-year time jump in in four when they'll be played by different actors, presumably David Thewlis, uh playing them all, which would be uh, amazing. Um, David Thewlis playing Sigourney Weaver playing a fourteen-year-old girl, <laughs> but uh, it's going to be it's going to be wild, uh, but. If, if, okay, so that's one thing we think is happening in 4. Another thing that might be happening in 4 is that the one that we're, he's talked about, they might go to Earth. But if it's a Tolkien rider, then how do you... Probably not in that one, then. How do you get the big space whale onto a, onto a spaceship? Unless it's like well, the A. Barakas and just drug his milk. It, so. Yeah. <laughs> you just drug his milk. And he, he's totally it's, better for fine. it's better for us. It's better for them. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot to talk about here. There's a lot to talk about in this batshit insane movie. Maybe Pyacan will pilot the ship. <laughs> yes. like something up Hitchhiker's Guide. <laughs> what did you guys make of the whole Kiri thing? Because obviously, like, bringing Sigourney Weaver back was a thing, and then having mm. her play a teenage girl was another thing. But, like, the performance she gave was incredible. And, like, she said that she spent time, like, in high schools and stuff to see how the inflections, how teenagers spoke. And if you've seen some of the B roll, like, even her facial expressions, they're very do you feel and kids? wide eyed. Like, it's really interesting. Well, she had disguised these high schools. Pay no attention to the Sigourney Weaver behind the curtains. Yes. This 70 year old woman in the corner. <laughs> it's just like, what's going on? Yeah. Uh, again, it's a bold move, I would say. Uh, I think it, it pays off pretty nicely. I think they've, they've youngified her voice. They put it into the younginator, which I believe is the machine that they use. And, uh, and, it, you know, and because she looks uncannily like a young Sigourney Weaver. But like a, mm. a Navi version of Scotty Weaver, it's just it's really really weird. Um, it, it is so totally Scotty Weaver, but because she's also playing an alien character, you don't have that jarring. There's that word again. Um, you don't have the jarring effect that you had in the Irishman, for example, where you're watching a seventy year old dude play a forty year old dude, and then he walks down a flight of stairs and is like, oh, "My knees, my knees, ouch, my knees." It's not, it doesn't quite I know, in fairness, like you that. do that at 40. I do do that. <laughs> I do do that. If I were 40, I would. But luckily, that's many years away from me. I hope this catches on and they do like a Home Alone reboot with Arnie playing the kid or something. Um, That'd be amazing. Yeah. More, more, more grown-up actors should play kids. Yeah. But what do you think of the, the character of Kiri herself? Uh, I have to say, I really like that character. I really, yeah, yeah, so did I. Yeah, I really connected with her. Yeah, I thought she was great. I thought they, I thought the family dynamic generally was well done. And I have to say, unlike I think uh, was it Nick said at the beginning, I didn't find the kids that annoying. I expected to. I expected mm. to be absolutely infuriated by them, <laughs> but they felt kind of real enough. You know, the sort of sibling bickering felt kind of grounded and and not too over the top. That I was kind of 
on board with it. I mean, yes, every time they're told to stay there, they don't. Okay, but you wouldn't have much of a film if they did, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think you want you want to sell these people as Jake and Neytiri's kids. You want them to feel like they are as kick-ass as their parents, because otherwise, my God, the next few films are going to be a, a long slog. Um, so... Yeah, but but Kiri in particular, she's she's very likable in her sort of. It's clear that there's something going on with her from mm. day one, but the the way you're not quite sure what it is, I think was well handled and well paced. He, he deals with it almost in the way that it might be that she's slightly autistic. Do you know what I mean? That because she sees the world differently to the others and gets rejected. I thought it was actually very sensitively handled, and I know the film came under some criticism for leaning into kind of like high school archetypes of the children. And I was like, I think that's just a little bit of a reflection of human nature, isn't it? Like they're outsiders who come into an insular group, so there's going. To to be some pushback and so it's unsurprising that the kids react slightly negatively in that way uh, because you know they, they give them human traits what did you guys think about the fact they were calling each other bro and saying hated sick? that hated it. like the valley speak can can get in the sea literally well where were they learning it from i have absolutely no problem with that they're, they're, they're speaking english all the way throughout the movie i know it's not english it's navi but i have Absolutely no problem with that. Otherwise, you, you could you could honestly quibble with any time any alien says any word that is recognisable <laughs> as an Scotty English Weaver word. Call someone penis face was one of the highlights of the film. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that they did drop back into subtitles when people swore at each other, but the rest of the time they're meant to be talking Navi, but we're hearing it as English. So it's really whatever the Navi word is for bro, and I know some people who who know that. Um, you know, it's it. Uh, it, it's not bro, per se, mm. if that is any comfort whatsoever. What is the Navi for penis face? That's what I want to know. I, I've just looked it up, and it, it actually translates as Jamaz Dyer. It's such Chamaz... a beautiful language, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's beautiful. Really Chamaz Dyer. Speaking it's... of penises, uh, <laughs> I will say that the Navi loincloths are particularly clever, and they seem to sort of almost smart flex at any opportunity so that you don't get any dodgy up loincloth shots while they're swimming. It feels a lot like, I mean, the, the end of the movie with the, the Tolkien's, uh, the, the, the dual Tolkien's jumping into the air felt a lot like James Cameron's version of a Bond film. And it feels, or for a Bond credit sequence, and a lot of this movie feels a little bit like that. Oh, oh, bit of cock, bit of, <laughs> bit of bum. <laughs> no, whoops, you almost saw something there. Finger. Yeah, oh my word. Blue finger, oh. more like. Yeah. Oh my word. You only blew twice. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> that's that's to a kill. upsetting. Yeah. Um, the one F bomb in the movie belongs to Spider, played by Jack Champion, and uh, I've just been looking him up on on the IMDb, and I mean, what a start to this kid's career! He's in Avengers Endgame, so there's a very real possibility he? he might be the highest. Did grossing... he play the Soulstone? <laughs> he did. He played Kid on Bike. I think he's the kid on the bike that Scott Lang stops oh, in yeah. San Francisco. Ah. I think that's him. I think that's him. Obviously, Soy Saldana is also in Avengers Endgame, so, okay. I was about to say. But, yeah. uh, he, you know, he's had a very good start. If he carries this on, 20 Jeez, years down the line, he might be the highest grossing actor of all time. <laughs> no pressure. Jack Champion. We believe in you. We Come believe in, the name. in you. Box office champion. He says fuck and makes terrible decisions. That's that's what Spider is. That's you all think we his know family about sing We Are the Champions every Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I think they do. I think they do. 
Okay, well, due to Squadcast's faffery, uh, we have now decided, <laughs> through no choice of our own, to record this Avatar spoiler special in two parts. Uh, a couple of days apart, in fact, because our Avatar session was just interrupted by technological shenanigans, gremlins in the works, who knows, Quaritch messing the whole thing up, whatever it was. Uh, we had to interrupt our session on Friday. We're now back. It's Monday, 9th of January. Uh, Nick and James and myself are where we were three days ago. Helen, you're somewhere completely different, which might explain why you sound slightly different. Do I? Oh, dear. I'm terribly sorry. I'm in a glass case of emotion in the office. You're in one of uh, Bauer Media's patented sex pods. That's apparently correct. Chris, and we I refer really to them as fuck boxes. Sorry, that's, that's right. That's not fuck better. That's the approved company the nomenclature. Yeah, yeah. Book a a fuck box for lunch. Yes, you're you're in a Bauer booth TM. Uh, What's it like? A surprisingly roomy? Do you have enough air to last you the next hour or so? I can quite literally touch all four walls and probably the ceiling and floor at once, um, which is a little concerning. Uh, And and, uh, yeah, I hope I have air because there's something making an awful lot of noise. So if it's not pumping air in, it's pumping in something worse. Please don't speculate. It's very much no. like the film Buried with Ryan Reynolds, but um, but with Helen. Mm. Yes, but hopefully like without the snakes. Spoiler with- there for Buried. Yes. Is there a snake in Buried? There's a trouser snake. Yeah. Not oh, a euphemism. Hello. hello. Not a euphemism. That might hello. be the porn parody. <laughs> Squadcast's uh, intervention came at the right time, actually, because we were just about to get on to our listener questions, the things that you've been sending in over the last couple of days on Twitter. And actually, it's allowed some people who got in after the deadline to maybe have their questions read out. So everybody's happy. Everybody wins. Uh, What I will say is that uh, Avatar The Way of Water has been chugging away nicely at the box office over the weekend, uh, posted, I believe, the second biggest fourth weekend of all time, uh, is my understanding, uh, in the US box office at the weekend. It is now on 1.7 billion, according to our pals at boxofficemojo.com. And um, it will slow down, like the spaceships in Independence Day. Uh, the only question is how long it's going to hover over Earth's major cities, also like the spaceships in Independence Day. Uh, my My prediction at this point is that it will overtake Titanic, which is at 2.2 billion at the moment to become the third biggest film of all time. And that's where it'll stay. I don't think it'll, I don't think it's going to be a threat to Avengers Endgame or indeed the original Avatar. Does anyone else disagree with that? Or do you agree with that? Or do you think it's going to get less than that? Do you think it's going to slow down a little bit more quickly? What's going to happen? Yeah, it's just overtaking Jurassic World, hasn't it? Which proves to beat blue, you got to go even bluer. And, um, <laughs> I'm gonna look. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm, I trust in 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 James Cameron. I'd never never doubt him. Uh, I'm gonna say it's gonna be the new number one. What the hell? What? Wow. That is wow, insane. <laughs> That's madness. <laughs> I don't believe it, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Are you going to see this like 10 million more times you and stick out the to. company credit card? Because mm. <laughs> that's the only thing that would possibly get it there. Yeah. Uh, 18 screenings a day. And then I, I think I can get it over the line. Um, 18 yeah. screenings of a three-hour movies a day. I think your maths are a little bit off here, Nick. But okay, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going with it. Even as I said it, I realized how insane it was and how unlikely it is to happen. But yeah, I'm going to say. How many screenings? You could do, what, six screenings a day? 
Six screens a day with no sleep. I mean, sleep. you'd have to find a particular cinema that was open for those those hours because you haven't got travel time. Like you can't mm. get six screenings and also travel in and out. I think realistically, you're talking four max. Yeah, uh, forty X is IMAX, quite Helen. quite pricey. I, I, uh, how many billions can I put on the company credit card? <laughs> I think I can. I can get a couple of. As your on lawyer, that. I think I, I speak for all of us when I say zero billions. <laughs> the expenses claim might be a difficult conversation. You might have to become an MP to get that one through. Uh, <laughs> that, that expenses claim through. Uh, and of course, if you set up a cinema in your second home, then we'll pay for the energy bill for that. Anyway, let's not get political, folks. Uh, James, where do you think this thing's going to land? Uh, I think you're probably right. I think it will, in all likelihood slide into third place but yeah it's it's not i i mean i'd be astonished i mean i think realistically elon musk would have to come along and drop 44 billion at the box office for number one I mean, that's pretty much and it would also it would make as much business sense as his acquisition of twitter so you know why not more, do it if anything you know better use so, of money quite frankly so yeah yeah, yeah i i think i think three or four as well i think it's interesting isn't it that he said it would have to reach the be the thir- third or fourth highest grossing film of all time to break even and it's that looks exactly like it's going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now, I, I, I'm intrigued by that comment. Now, he, he has never said two billion. He has never said that. What he said is, and he's a smart guy. He knows the box office. Mm-hmm. He, you know, mm-hmm. he knows where his competitors are, lying in wait. Uh, he knows the competition he has vanquished over the years. But he never said two billion. He said the fourth or fifth highest movie, highest grossing movie of all time, yeah. in order to break even. A lot of people have been quibbling with that. Like, what does that mean exactly? Break even because it's a four hundred and fifty million dollar budget, reportedly. And then obviously you have your marketing on top of that. And that would indicate that it's already well past the break-even point, unless he's talking about the break-even for the franchise to make three, four, and five a viable concern. What do you, what do you guys think? Yeah, so that where that quote came from, I think it was a GQ article, and he was saying it, was, it in yes. a different context. He was saying it in the context of that's the conversation that he had with Disney when it got greenlit. So, or whoever would you know was it Fox? Still, it was still Fox at the time. Um, so it was not the list of box office all-timers as it is now it was the list as it was in what 2012 13 around then so it's significantly less but he's come out and clarified that it's 1.5 i think billion that was the break even still pretty big still pretty big and it is there that would make more sense so basically yes um the budget has been quoted everywhere from 350 to 460 million, um, which is a lot of money. If it's at the 460 range, it's pretty much the most expensive film ever made. I think you 400 know, of that went with Sam Worthington. Indeed, um, it's, I think it's it's up there with uh, weirdly Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, which was crazy expensive. Uh, so you have to kind of assume. They, they then spent another roughly, I think, 300 million you're talking about for marketing on something like this. The marketing costs worldwide are mahoosive. Um, and you have to factor in the fact that, yes, you know, as we've talked about before, the, the studio doesn't get all the money at the box office. The cinemas get some of the money. Correct. So um, it's the very, very rough rule of thumb is about half. So, mm. so yeah, it, you know, 1.5, 1.6 does sound more realistic then on those numbers, in which case... You know, break out the champagne. Um, I, I was also talking to a box office expert last week who was saying basically when you have a hit, you tend to get the next two films greenlit. Um, so that's why we have so many Transformers films, for example. They keep coming because they've been greenlit already. So this feels like three and four are probably now safe. And the only question is about five or six. Is he definitely going beyond five then? Has he said that for sure? It was... Um, so he the, basically the plan was two, three, four, five. But then since then, he said, oh, I got ideas for six and seven. 
So I think five is like the end of this particular saga. And then I think there are poten- there's potential for more after that. But yeah, I think the plan right. is to do five. That's the end of the story. So I'd be very surprised if we didn't get a five. Blimey, O'Reilly. Uh, we'll definitely get a five, I'd, I'd say. Uh, obviously, the Avatar cynics who were celebrating its $400 million opening weekend around the world as if it was a flop uh, will still point to it if it slows down and hits around 2.2, 2.3. Um, or or even just sneaks past Force Awakens and Infinity War, which are which are just past two billion. If if it does that, people will obviously point at that. The cynics, the skeptics, the people who want to bring this franchise down, uh, will point at that and go, "That's almost a billion less than the first one made." Ergo, it's still not done that well comparatively speaking. Which obviously means we're in 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 insaneville when we're talking about the this sort of numbers. But of course, you know, we have to factor the pandemic in. Uh, no mm-hmm. film has made $2 billion, not even No Way Home, uh, not even Eternals has made $2 billion in this in this climate. Uh, and it's it's wild to see that this is this is going to do it. This is going mm-hmm. to break the $2 billion barrier. It just depends on how much, how, 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 how long its lovely blue legs are. Anyway, enough box office buffoonery. Let's get into your questions. You have slid into my DMs, so thank you for that. I'm going to take them in the order in which I'm seeing them. Not necessarily the order in which you sent them, but let's see how it goes. First one comes from Robert Frost. I don't know if he's any relation to Frost from Aliens. Uh, If so, I'm sorry for your future loss. Uh, At Rob E. Frost. Is he a poet in a wood? With two roads diverging, perhaps? He is an editor and an assistant editor. Okay. So close enough. Close enough. Close he's, enough. He's his own assistant. He is his own assistant. Multitasking. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know exactly how he feels. Uh, question for Avatar Sporter Pod. Apparently there are just two shots in the film that don't have any VFX. Do you know which two shots they are? He doesn't mm-hmm. know, by the way. He's asking, do we know? Is it the one where the giant space whale jumps onto the boat? <laughs> Yes, that <laughs> is the one. They used an actual space whale and an actual boat. I I do think it's probably one of the ones of the boat, though. I like because even when they're in the base, there's there's hardly any like close-ups, right? There, you know, yeah. you've got mm. the general striding around in her mecha and everything. So I just I don't I don't think ev- any of those even are obviously CG free. So I think it's probably some of the whalers on the boat. Could it be when Spider smashes the console? Because you're not, you can't see to the best oh, of my yeah. mind, any of the windows in that shot. Because windows would all be effects, wouldn't they? So I wonder whether you can see. I don't know, maybe something like that. I'd like to yeah. think they gave VD Falco a real Robo Mech suit to oh, do kickboxing in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're probably you right. Have one it's of probably, the Sopranos. This is true. This is true. <laughs> yeah, the finale. But yeah, probably probably something spidery. Something spidery, maybe, because even the even the flashback sequence, flashback sequence, whatever the hell it is, Quaridge's message to himself, they must mm. be using de-aging technology on Slang and Giovanni Ribisi uh, for his one shot eleventh build appearance uh, in the movie. I hope we get Parker Selfridge in, in three and four and five. By the way, because in my opinion, no Parker Selfridge, no Avatar. Uh, so a bit harsh, <laughs> but there you go. Yeah, I think he's going to turn good, by the way. I was watching the, um, like a giant nerd, I was watching some deleted scenes from the first film uh, the other week, and um, there are some deleted scenes where he's sort of starting to look um, unhappy with uh, what's going on on Pandora. So I think he's going to turn into a good guy. Just saying. If 
if he's in three and four and five. That is, I, mean, I hope he is. I hope he is. He is the heart and soul of this franchise. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was so glad. By the way, I know this isn't the the question, but maybe oh, I was going to say something with Grace whenever she appears in the uh, in the dream sequence where we finally get to see Sigourney uh, as Grace. But then she's interacting with a blue Navi, so I'm pretty sure that's got an effect. Um, unless the Navi have become self-aware, like Skynet. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past James Cameron, but we, we shall see. Uh, in other words, Robert Frost, we do not know. I am so, so sorry. And again, I am sorry for your future loss. At Bupa1219, this has literally just fallen into my DMs. How eager are you to see Cameron take the Navi and his story to Earth? We talked about this a little bit in the, in the first part, but how eager are you to see that happen? I'm intrigued more than like eager. I just I just think it'll be really it's so it's such a different quite literal world, you know, and I I, I just I, I don't I don't have a, a grasp on it right now. We haven't seen that much of the Navi interacting even with with you know earth technology or earth environment. So we we saw a little bit more of it this time. I guess you had last time you had you know Neytiri obviously going into the lab to to save Jake's life. Um human Jake at that point. Uh, so we have that tiny little glimpse of that. We have a few more scenes here with the Navi basically kind of walking around and not quite holding their breath, but not far off it um, in some Earth environments. But it's so different that it's really hard to to see mm. what it would be at the moment. I, but I'm intrigued, you know, that kind of Blade Runner-y Earth that he created is about as far from Pandora as you can get. Mm. But my only worry with this is that what if, like, okay, look, there are lots, a lot of reasons why The Matrix Revolutions is not a good film. But one of the biggest ones is it doesn't spend any time in The Matrix. And you realise in that film that that's why you're there. Like most of that film takes place outside The Matrix, except for the bit at the beginning and the bit at the end. And it's just like, and I feel like with this, like Pandora is one of the key characters of the film. And I wonder if you take it off Pandora, does it lose something? Does it lose a fundamental mm. part of itself? That would be my concern slightly. I think it's coming off Pandora, whatever happens, because he's talked about other planets and in that kind of solar system or whatnot. So I think it's going to be going off Pandora, whatever happens. I'm really excited for it to come to Earth. I think the, if you watch the extended edition, it's got like, what, 15 minutes at the start, 10 minutes of... Um, and you realise James Cameron has designed a whole future Earth, which I just think is really cool. Like I'm sure he's got it all mapped out in his head. And like Helen said, it's this Blade Runnery, like very grim but high tech kind of vision of um, mm. of where Earth is going. And I'm I'm really excited to see more of that. You're right though about losing something if we lose Pandora, because you know part of the reason that I think this this film has been so embraced by audiences has been that chance to essentially go on holiday for the price of a cinema ticket, you know, to a degree. You're, you are going, you feel transported to this world and it's beautiful and it's amazing and not all of us can afford a trip to the South Seas. And, you know, if, if you don't have mm. that element of, of beautiful escapism, yeah. maybe you do lose something. Mm. It's nice to feel, feel like you're going to Bora Bora or Bali or the Maldives and not say, oh, I don't know, grim industrial landscape, Newcastle. It's, it's you know, and listen, and that's not controversial. Mike Hodges was doing it 50 years ago. So he said it first, not me. I love the people in Newcastle and the city of Newcastle. Well done. <laughs> but for me, like the, yeah, Pandora is beautiful and amazing and transportive, but all the amazing, like cool, high tech, like military stuff that Cameron brings is equally cool to me anyway. Like, and I'm really excited. Like, obviously he's a futurist and he is creating entire worlds. And I'm really excited to see more of that, you know, earth technology sped up. 
But he's also kind of one of these, he also has that thing that you get a lot in American filmmaking where the higher the tech, the more likely it is to be beaten by a dude with a club or at the very least a sort of biker dude with some kind of more diesel powered technology, you know? Um, and it, obviously he's kind of, that was like Terminator 2 era Cameron and then it's kind of gone backwards to like full on, you know, Navi's taking down the whole of of Earth tech. So I I, I think I love that he's so conflicted about it. Though I love that he's he he gives us these incredible technolo- technological landscapes and also kind of undermines them at the same time. For me, it's uh, crucial to have a human element in these movies. You know, I I thought the sequences in the the uh, the sea village whose name I still can't remember. What is it? Do we know the name of the village? The people of the Metcaina, but I don't the know. Metcaina, yeah, okay. I, I couldn't remember. Yeah, the Metcaina. Those scenes with the Metcaina are all beautiful, and I love the Tolkien, and it's it's great. But I did, as I said before, switch off a little bit during that because it was very travelogy at times. And also, it, I just didn't really connect. I, I mean, I liked those characters, and they were way less annoying than I thought they were going to be. But I didn't connect as emotionally with them as the film wants you to in order to have the... I think the the real emotional loss of uh, insert name of Jake and Natiri's older son here. Uh, you know they want the camera wants you to have the, a huge emotional impact from that, and it didn't quite get there for me both times. But you know, for me, I think one of the, one of the things with those sequences as well is that it is so. I mean, the effects are astonishing, as we've said, but it is so. It lacks that human element, and there's something great about that sort of bed knobs and broomsticks <laughs> type um, interaction of human elements and this incredible CG landscape. Uh, I'd be very interested to see what it looks like if it's reversed the other way, like a Navi, uh, you know, in a in a human landscape. Uh, might as we 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 discussed last time, are they going to try and terraform it? Are they going to try and bring the Tolkien to Earth's? Uh, I imagine boiling, polluted oceans and do some sort of weird Star Trek four crossover type thing uh, where they repel this giant alien craft that's going around destroying planets. Um, but the Tolkien save the day and then save Earth ultimately. Maybe. Who knows? But for me, it needs a human element. It needs Giovanni Ribisi. Yeah. He set up, he set up in the intro to the first one, the deleted intro, that um, wildlife is pretty much extinct on Earth now. There's no animals at all. But yeah, I agree with you, Chris. I think there's something really magical when you've got the humans and the CG stuff interacting. For me, that's when these films are most impressive. And when you, your brain is going, how the hell is this when they're all interacting together? So, I, you know, whether it's humans in Pandora or the other way around. I tell you what I would like more of is more of that proper science fiction feeling like proper like cover of a crazy 60s sci-fi novel feeling because that's a lot of what i got from the first film in particularly you know the hallelujah mountains and essentially dragons versus you know helicopters Hmm. kind of stuff like you know the first film essentially delivered on the promise of the rain of fire poster after all these years we finally got there Um, and you know and and while this film like is is astonishingly beautiful and did make me feel like i'd been on holiday to the south pacific and i loved it um i also kind of missed some elements of of some of that kind of crazy sci-fi-ness and so if these if these films to come if these stories to come are you know aliens on earth they are the pandora forming of earth while pandora is earth formed or whatever the heck he's going for if they are new planets new worlds new crazy looking bits of pandora with you know all sorts of anti-gravity stuff i'm super there for it like i want more of these 
you know, not grim and gritty, realistic, we can afford to do this alien and Star Wars aesthetic. That's great, but it's not the only kind of sci-fi. And it would be nice to see that more kind of Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, crazy 1960s sci-fi cover image wildness going on in the sequels. Because he can afford to do it like no one else can. All right. Here's another question. This is from Filmdom Blog at Filmdom Blog on the old Twitters. Uh, what do you think needs to happen for major awards to recognize motion capture performances? Could the huh. Avatar movies be a Kickstarter for it to finally happen? And this is something I meant to mention the first time around. And we were talking about how we feel that Natiri is underused in this movie and hopefully she'll get to really come to the fore in the next three movies or so. Uh, but it just reminds me of the conversation about Zoe Saldana in the first movie, the first, you know, first time around. She was at the forefront of the, that performance was so great that people were saying, could she be nominated for an Oscar for it? And obviously it didn't happen, and it still hasn't happened that these great motion capture performances are being overlooked by uh, by acting awards and, uh, and acting guilds and whatnot. Do you think that might change down the line with this? Or subsequent sequels? I, I think you need a combined award for that, if that's going to be a thing. I think the actor needs to be nominated alongside the, effect, the VFX team. And in some cases, that would be difficult because you've got you know different studios working on different scenes, that kind of thing. Uh, I don't think you can just nominate the actor in a straight up acting category for this kind of performance. You think? Um, simply because the, yeah, because the VFX artists are very, very, very important. It's interesting. I don't know enough of the details. Obviously, I know that a lot of the facial expression is captured using the, you know, the rig that they use. But then I guess the question is, and I have absolutely no idea, it's like, how much then is that facial movement then nuanced and tweaked? In, I assume quite a lot in post-production. Um, and then also how much of that? Yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a, lot, there's a lot to unpick there. Hmm. They've been making a big noise in interviews about how it's not really tampered. Like, it is genuinely what was done on the day is what you're saying. Obviously, made blue and stripy. But um, they, that they're not... They do always say that, though. Yeah. Well, I've they have been from VFX artists that that's not always the case when yeah, that has been said. Maybe not, but they have been releasing these si a few side-by-side -side videos, which you look at them True. and it's actually, you go, I'm sure okay. that's often the case. I just don't think you can guarantee that it's always the case. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I don't mean to, like say that they're not great performances I think they are but I just feel like the VFX is a part of it and it has to be no, recognised alongside yeah. and it's an unknown territory like you can't know for sure can you because you don't have the before and after but I do I do think if when there is a nomination and if there is somebody who gets nominated for a, a performance capture role it's probably not going to be for an Avatar film I think there's just a bias against performances in big action movies generally I think you know Heath Ledger got one but can you think of anyone else has anyone been nominated for a Marvel film not that necessarily no. anyone should have, but perhaps Downey could have got one for, you know, Endgame. Walton Goggins, obviously. Obviously yes, Goggins. Walton Gog Walter Goggles was overlooked heinously uh, and disgracefully for Ant-Man and the Wasp, but hopefully Armor Wars will set that right. So that's Indeed. very exciting. Uh, very exciting. Sonny Birch in Armor Wars coming um, at some point. Um, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think there is an absolutely a snobbery uh, to movies of this kind and to performances of this kind. And uh, I think to solve Helen's uh, argument or, or issue, the issue that Helen has raised, it's a very, very simple one. The actor has to do their own effects. <laughs> have to. You have to give them a crash course mm. in Photoshop and get Andy Serkis to do his own stuff. Well, that is how Avatar was made. <laughs> that is how Avatar was made. It was made in Photoshop and Quark Express. Yes. Uh, here's a wow. question that is f along similar lines, and this comes from 
at Spineless Oaf, who says, why don't we consider these films to be animated movies? Uh, everything on screen is digitally manipulated. How is that different from an animated movie like Robert Zemeckis' movies of the early aughts? Yeah. I mean, they, they are mainly animated, not entirely animated, but they are, yeah, predominantly. Vast majority of it is animated, I think that's fair to say. Isn't the distinction that animation is kind of created by the by the animators rather than driven by the performances? Isn't that the distinction? I don't think as much these days. Like they use a lot of performance capture in animated stuff. Uh, they always have, to be honest. Yeah. You know, I mean, even in very very traditional hand drawn animation, you know, either animators will sit there making faces at themselves in a mirror, or you get models brought in. Very famously, Disney had models for Cinderella, for Sleeping Beauty, uh, for most of its sort of classic. Um, heroines uh so and and they will film you know dance scenes they will film uh you know movement and so on and then use that as the basis for animation they've they've always done that and then you've mm -hmm. got the rotoscoped complication of you know what about apollo 10 and a half um that completely overlooks richard linklater film last wasn't last year i've lost track of time it was last year um, yeah. last year uh you know how is what we're doing with vfx fundamentally different from rotoscoping beyond you know a few generations of of evolution of computers mm -hmm. uh, arguably it's absolutely not you know so i i just uh Andrew Osmond, who's you know written for for Empire a few times, he he considers this an animated film, or he certainly considered the first one an animated film. He included it in his book of of great animated movies. I I don't think he's wrong. I don't think he's wrong. I think it's you know it's got a big human element, obviously, and obviously these are you know if you're an animator, you get into who gets into animation. These animated movies are made with with uh, specialized for the most part. You know, there's an awful lot of live action DPs and whatnot who are now working in in animation. Also, mm -hmm. that's a difference for a start but ultimately does it matter does it matter because what we're doing is we're implying er, therefore that animated movies are lesser than quote-unquote real movies live action movies and that's clearly not the case um so it doesn't really matter there's been a definite choice to not label these as animated movies because somebody in marketing or somebody in a you know focus group has decided that animated movies play to a different audience. So that that I think is unquestionable. But if you yeah. want to define it as an animated movie, I don't think logically mm. there's anything wrong with that. Otherwise, you know, what was that uh, Brad Pitt one? Cool World wouldn't be yeah. an animated mm. movie because there's that one dude in it. You know, it, it just We're, yeah, it's a sliding scale, right? Because Roger Rabbit, no one would call Roger Rabbit an animated film, but it's 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 on the scale right like there are point there are scenes in it that you would say are are animated like entirely animated i think it's i think it's a level of realism and the level of complexity like cameron's going for photorealism here with the images and for the most part getting it and it's it's kind of astonishing and the budget level is obviously beyond i'd say anything that any animated movie has to play with um and animated movies, even even the Semeckis ones, because the Semeckis, the Semeckis ones, that you know, the Beowulf and Polar Express and Christmas Carol, uh, the ones he made, he he was making those as animated movies. He wasn't trying to pass them off as live action movies. Whereas I think this is that Cameron is Cameron is going for absolute one hundred percent photorealism here. I think that is true in the in what you're saying in terms of passing off. I think Cameron would see this as a as reality like he's definitely trying to pass this off as a real live action movie where something like i mean obviously it isn't now but go back to the early noughties something like final fantasy the spirits within which was touted as photo real animation it was always mm. pushed as animation it was conceived as animation no one was trying to pass it off as reality obviously the effects haven't aged as well but it's still a pretty good for its time yeah, yeah it is whereas here he's basically saying this is a real planet this is a real thing with real animals real creatures real real people who just happen to be nine feet tall blue and have cat's tails uh all right 
Here is a question by people who are slightly less blue, Linda Navi. They are the Metcayina. I know that name and I will remember it now. Uh, <laughs> this is from at BibbleQ, BibbleQ, Ben Lee on Twitter. I'm sure it probably didn't just bug me, but were the actual at sign, hashtag sign, inverted comma sign and pound sign, did the Metcayina clan disappear to during slash after the final battle? It sure would have been handy having a water tribe around when the ship was sinking, don't you think? That's uh... fair. That's fair. <laughs> I did have the it same thought fair. myself. <laughs> and I, I've seen this film three times and I still haven't got an answer as to where Cliff I goes. Think it was dinner time. I think it was, it was time for dinner and they were like, we're hungry and we're going back to the village to eat. Maybe it's a Boris bike situation where you have to return your uh, fish. <laughs> <laughs> you only got that's it for We yeah. don't want to get a charge. <laughs> that's it. I, I do. I mean, I think there's there is a moment where sort of the battle has been won. You know, the the whale has been freed. The ship has been crippled, and they're like, "Yay, we're done here. Let's go home." And they don't realize <laughs> that two members of this one family that are visiting them have been. Yes kidnapped, captured, and are being held hostage on the sh ship, and therefore the rest of the family has decided. So I think family. it is a sort of perhaps an oversight on their part, maybe. A, a pretty big oversight. <laughs> yeah, yes, admittedly. For which they must atone. But yes, the uh, I think... That I think that's probably the best explanation. I think there's that moment, which I think might be my favourite moment in the movie, where Quaritch is basically saying to Jake as he as he rides away, uh, having won the battle, and he's basically, "I'm going to come after you and your family. This is never going to end." And then Jake goes, well, "Okay, let's get it done. Let's you know, let's get it over with." Essentially, and he and he uh, leaps into the fray. Uh, now he's leaving at that point, so it's possible that Cliff Curtis is just like da 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 da, -da. and then he looks behind himself five minutes later and everyone's fucked off and he's wondering what the hell's going on here maybe that's what's what's happening there that's let's go with that i'm sure there's a scene missing i'm sure there's a scene that was filmed to explain this but just cut but um yeah i I'm, i assumed that like, there was a limit to their kind of to how much they were going to commit and they'd had a, a bunch of casualties and they were in it to save the the whale they were saving the whale they saved the whale and they went home yeah. for dinner maybe ronal went into labor this is true. She look, did look like she was about to pop, so that might, that might well be the case. Uh, yes, or they'd all decided they need to get back because the Happy Valley was starting. Boom. Or Happy Uncanny Valley. Am I right? Am yes. I right? No? No? <laughs> okay. Uh, here's a question from Electric Croc. Would the team like to have seen a tighter, streamlined 2.5-hour version of this film, or were they happy to luxuriate in the three-plus-hour edit? For what it's worth, I loved every minute and was happy to spend the time water-diving in high-frame-rated 3D gorgeousness. See, I wondered whether it would be to its box office detriment to have it at this length. Clearly, I was wrong. My thinking was obviously repeat viewing is going to be a big part of this film's business. And I was thinking, you know, when you are north of three hours, it might put people off going back again because it feels like a bit of a marathon. But clearly that hasn't been the case. So it's absolutely Everybody fine. Everybody loves marathons. Um, Everyone loves marathons. Nobody loves marathons. Uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, but, like, but, I mean, you know, he did say there was a four-hour car. I think that probably would have been too much. And you could argue that they didn't need quite as much fish riding 101 in this. But again, it's like this is about spending time on Pandora and the more time spent on Pandora, the better for me. So I was I was pretty happy. I I mean, yeah, I, I had the same concern. I probably wouldn't cut it down. I might, you know, replace some scenes. So I keep going on about Neytiri, but like I might replace some fish riding scenes with some <laughs> what the hell is going on with her scenes personally. Yes. Um, but yes. I don't think the, the length, um, that's going to sound wrong. I was about to say, I don't think the length is a problem. And then you should never say that when Chris, you're in the fuck box, Helen. 
I don't think that a lengthy running time for a film is necessarily a problem. And if you look at the top three um, highest grossing films worldwide of all time, they're all around the three R mark. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. They are. They Maybe size are. does matter. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It is nine minutes shorter than Gene Dillman. I'll just say that. Um, and quite a bit more happens in this film. Significantly fewer potatoes. There are fewer potatoes peeled. This is this is true. Um, but yeah, I, I think the length is kind of part of its appeal. To, not to all, definitely, but to, you know, it feels like an event. It, you've been waiting, you know, 12 years or whatever it is for this. So yeah. Um, and I don't know. It just feels like a huge, big slab of blockbuster. We've been waiting 12 years for James Cameron to unveil his length, and here we are. We're all very satisfied. Uh, at Edward. What? What? So many poorly chosen words. Uh, at Luke Beasy on Twitter, uh, Way of Water seemed to get a much more negative response from the press in the UK than it did in the States. Why do you think that is? I, I think, I think, you know, and I don't want to speak for Robbie, and I think, like, knowing Robbie, I suspect he believed, I don't think he probably had an agenda, that's just Robbie. Um, but I do think people went into this film with their knives already, perhaps a touch sharpened, uh, and maybe that, but why that's a particularly British thing, I couldn't tell you. It's a very British thing. That's very British. What, knives out? <laughs> knives out and uh, turning up to, to skewer something. Uh, to take something down that's 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 very it's the British, British way. It, I think it's a, it's a, you know obviously there there are uh it is an American trait as well but I think it's a particularly British thing to try and take someone or something down to take it down a peg or two but I don't know maybe it's just a small sample sample set I have read every review that came out in the states from this movie maybe people in the states mm. did it as well but it does it does feel like you know some fairly high profile British critics were were going in uh, with two feet on this one but uh anyway anywho there's like an earnestness to it. I think we talked about this earlier, but you know, there's mm-hmm. an earnestness, and which I'm sure will, has rubbed people, some people, up the wrong way. You know, you've got a film where the whale is starts to have a chat uh, with with the blue person, and I think it's too painful. It's too you, painful. Yeah, you either get on board with that or you don't. Dan Mackley on Twitter asks, uh, "Do you think the divided reception?" <laughs> Here we go. Nice thematically uh, linked question. Depends on whether the person saw this in three D or not. I love the film, but I can imagine getting restless without that complete immersion the three D offered. Again, not to go over everything we all the coals we raked in the first half of this podcast, but I saw it in two D the second time around and will never watch it in three D again. Honestly, you're uh, a monster. It lost not a bean for me in two D, uh, but I realize I am wrong. I maybe wasn't looking at the screen first time around <laughs> maybe that would maybe, be yeah. if, if it seemed a bit dark and a bit you know leathery it might have been the back of the chair <laughs> you might have been facing the wrong direction um, I can confirm I mean at least a couple of the critics that have been hinted at were in the same screening as me and saw it in glorious 3D so it ain't that um but but no I I think I think it's I think it's a strong story anyway I think I think that Cameron has a gift for big bold Yes, sometimes broad stroke storytelling, and some people absolutely hate that, and some people embrace it. And I don't think the for I mean the format helps, and obviously it's wonderful to see in you know magnificent high frame rate, high def, blah blah blah. But you don't have to. Do you think it would have been improved in terms of reception had Loak spent ten to fifteen minutes peeling a Navian potato? <laughs> we just got one of his one there. of his flippers is damaged, so I'm not sure he'd be able to. I think that's why he was so sad. Oh <laughs> no, you're thinking of Pyacon. Oh, now if he, if, if Pyacon was peeling a potato, I'd 100 watch oh, it. Oh yeah, no, a giant. Feels like you need to see this movie a fourth time, Rick, in order to <laughs> get the character names right. Uh, I just went straight to the the whale. 
Loak, Loak, of course, everyone knows Loak is the... <laughs> Second son, yes. Second son, the, theory. arguably yes. the lead of the film. Yes, arguably yes. the lead. Yep, that's absolutely. right. That's right. Yes, Loak. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's like Turner and Hooch, isn't it? Only with uh, a blue guy and a giant whale. But people have obviously said that. Oh, name three people from Avatar. And they're being very facetious. I will. I will confess. I am. Str- I do struggle to keep some of the names in my head. Never with the first film. I didn't because Norm is quite easy to remember. But you Norm. know. Yeah. But Loak and Natayim and Tonawari. I, like, I do. I'm like, and who? I remember Tuck. I remember Spider. I remember Kiri. But it's the two brothers in particular. And then uh, what's the chops? That's uh, Soraya. I often forget her name as well. Soraya. I have a friend called Soraya and I still forget Soraya's well, no name, which is very bad with me. I know. <laughs> we'll, terrible. We'll get there. We'll get there in time. We'll get there in time. It's like me with the planets and Guardians of the Galaxy. I didn't know them all at first, but now I know them intimately. <laughs> Absolutely. Who can name Cliff Curtis's character? Tonawari. Cliff Curtis plays himself. He plays Cliff Curtis, and uh, <laughs> I, nothing you can say will dissuade me from that opinion. Yeah, and Kate Winslet plays Ronald Keating. <laughs> <laughs> she says her best when she says nothing at all and just goes. <laughs> what were your guys? What were you guys' favorite 3D shot from this film? The one that I keep thinking back to weirdly is quite early on in the film when Quaritch, Blue Quaritch, is looking out the window of the spaceship. And there's something about that shot is so incredible. Like, and you're seeing the planet far away and the window. I don't know. Yeah. I love that That's shot. That's when he's 3D. repeating his lines from the first film, which I think may have distracted me in that thing when he's like, he's doing his welcome to Pandora sort of speech. You're like, hang on, have we been here before? That's a potent mix. Yeah. I mean, when yeah. you perfected the one-liner, just keep saying <laughs> it. <laughs> um, I, weirdly, like the first bit, the first, when they first dive into the water, the kids... And the mm. frame rate kicks up. That's a lovely shot. I really like yeah. that. And they're struggling, whereas Kiri kind of instantly is at home in the water. Because, um, you know, Awa. Yeah. Mm. A Loak hanging out with his new whale buddy. Um, you know, yeah. that shot up, upwards towards the surface is amazing. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's a lovely shot. They use that in the trailer. When he's, when he's did, uh, yeah. dragging his hand along the surface of the water. Yeah, yeah that's lovely. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I burn 3D, burn it to the ground. And would I say that to James Cameron's face? You're absolutely, bet your bottom daughter I fucking wouldn't. Uh, anyway, at Smithio, when Avatar Quaritch is watching the video message from Human Quaritch, why doesn't Human Quaritch have any scars on his face? He does. He does. He does. He there does. you go. All right. <laughs> he does. It's just that where his head's angled, he's looking slightly to his right, so they're slightly hidden, but you can see them. Also, how hardcore is Quaritch that his scars literally go through to his skull? Like, mm. he actually clawed, like, furrows down his skull. That's a hell of a scar. James, am I right in thinking that that scar was inflicted by a slinth, a deleted you creature? Know what? A slinth, a, a creature that never made it into the final cut of the screenplay. I asked James Cameron about the slinth when I interviewed him for the first one. I was like, where is the slinth? Because it's in the scriptment. And the slinger made it into the, well, at least mention of it, I think, makes it into the final script. But the slinth did not. Release the slinth cut. L- release the slinth <laughs> cut. Yeah. Apparently it dropped out quite early on, Cameron said. Presumably after Quaritch destroyed every single member of its race after it sort of scratched his head. That does sound probable. Just a few last questions. Uh, Lauren Damon on Twitter. We don't see Jermaine Clement after the big pie can attack sequence. Are we to assume he's dead? No. I think we're to assume he's alive, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. You can't kill Ian Garvin. It just can't be done. He's tougher than Quaritch officially. Um, yeah, he'll be back. And um, I think we mentioned earlier, but Michelle Yeoh is going to be joining the sequels as another marine biologist. So I think there's going to be a whole lot of biology going on. 
<laughs> Only one thing can take down Jermaine Clement, and that is a mother ucker. Uh, we all know that. Uh, Mike Daisley, Jigster27. I know the rule is never doubt James Cameron, and I love this film. I've seen it four times, but how can they possibly get another three films <laughs> and counting out of this story? I mean, they made nine, ten, what, eleven Star Wars films. They managed to do that. I'm sure he's got countless stories he could do. But then it's the same thing. It's just, it's just a setting for stories. Well, he said he said in an interview just for Christmas that films one and two were just setting the plate, setting the uh, the table for dinner, and that, that it's about to get started. <laughs> I, I love Cameron's just like, he has no sense, like his, his massive claims. I mean, he always backs them up to be fair to him, but he is not shy about like, zip, whomph. <laughs> <laughs> You've waited 12 years for the length. Here it is, folks. Oh, gosh. There's a lot of big stuff set up, right? Like, mm. um, you know, it's, it's just mentioned as an aside by Ardmore that the humans, the whole of Earth is basically coming to Pandora. And yeah. so that's a huge thing. They could go in that direction. They could go off world. I'm sure there's lots of Pandora. They talked about Fire Tribe and a Volcano Tribe. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot of kind of things cooking. Literally, with the fire people. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's exactly that. I think he's, and and also, you know, if if my mad theory about who the Avatar is um, proves true, then I think you've got this whole like metaphysical thing to go as well. I don't know that that's such a mad theory. I'll, I'll be honest. I think it's uh, I think it's it's pretty spot on, isn't it? I mean, there's only there's only really one candidate as well. Uh, she is the chosen. Oh, yeah, I, sure. I want to know what Kiri's midi chlorian count is. It must be <laughs> off the charts. Not even Master Yoda has a midichlorian count that high. Uh, at Sander underscore Guff asked a question that I think is answered in the film, but I just want to see what you guys think. Uh, the Ocean Tribe, the Metkayina, everyone knows that, speak very good English, but in Avatar 1, only a handful of the Navi tribe have been taught how to speak our language. Does this mean the Sky people have spent time with the Ocean Tribe before and were a lot closer to them as they're all very fluent? And I replied on Twitter, I don't very often do this, I wait for the pod, but I said, no, this is, we're understanding them in English because... Mm. Jake says mm. early on that it took me a while to get the grips of the language, at which point it's subtitled, but, but eventually it got into his thick skull, at which point we transitioned very nicely. I like when films yes. do this, yeah. um, where it's a nice transition from subtitled uh, to uh, not subtitled, which yeah. I believe is a technical term. Yes, that's it. <laughs> we are hearing it in Navi. Yes, we're hearing it in English, but it is said in Navi. No, well, I was hearing it in Navi. Maybe that's just me. Oh, apologies. Yeah, it kind of does it in the middle of a sentence. I love that. It's a bit of Hunt for Red October vibe. Interesting, yeah. though, that they don't have different dialects. Like, the, the Metkayina seem to speak mm. exactly the same language as the Amatakaya, so... I think that maybe comes down to the whole awareness of it all. Ooh, I mean, yes, they'd have point. specialized vocabulary, but, um, you know, if it's a sort of not quite hive mind, but if there's a shared yeah. consciousness for the whole planet, it makes sense. Yes, that's an excellent answer. Awa is a pretty good get-out clause for any plot hole. Just yes, because Awa. Yeah. <laughs> because Awa. Guys, Awa. Yeah. Uh, and also, Jake Jake has taught his family English, and Spider speaks English and Navi. Uh, and you have those sequences where Macquarie, 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 Macquarie is in this film now. <laughs> Chris and, Macquarie. Uh, Chris, Chris Macquarie. That's Macquarie. The, that's um, the, the four-hour cut is just him talking <laughs> about uh, Mission Impossible. And uh, yeah, Quaritch is... You know, he's not quite getting to grips with the language and you have that sequence where, you know, they're they're setting fire to the Metcayena's homes and they don't understand what what, what Quaritch is saying. So I don't think that the Metcayena are fluent in English mm. at all. Mm. No. Well, one question that I found quite curious is that they seem to have adopted the slightly human patriarchal custom of taking on Jake's surname. Like they're all like Loak Sully. Like 
I don't believe the Navi necessarily do. It just sounded so Sully weird stick to together. me. Sully stick together. What is what is Natiri's surname? Do they have? I don't do know. They that have they have, I don't know. Do they have tribal names? I don't. Uh, I think it's surname. just of the yeah. forest tribe or whatever, yeah, right? Exactly. So it's not. Um, I guess. Look, I, I guess it's sort of. It's pretty clear from this film that Jake Sully comes from a rather patriarchal family yeah. at least let's not say world ne- well it looks like world also yeah. so it, you, you know it makes a certain amount of sense how do you say fuck the patriarchy in navi well <laughs> i must check with the language experts if they've got that how one you, nailed yet how do you say it in tolkien <laughs> it's too painful <laughs> it's too <laughs> uncanny uncanny um yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit last time, but the, the Jake is apparent. I I I give him low marks. I give him a five or six out of ten. He he's putting far too much emphasis on the military side of things, on the warrior side mm-hmm. of things, on emphasizing that side of yourself above, above other things. Uh, he says, you know, father's job is to protect. With the, basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but without that, there is literally no point to it all. And I've had limited experience of this, but my understanding is that a father's job is to put on Muppet babies for a quiet life. That is my <laughs> understanding. Jake obviously doesn't have that available to him. So <laughs> a Tolkien Maybe babies? I don't know. Maybe he does because, you know, they have a little bit of a, if you see, remember in the in their home, their forest home before they leave at the beginning of the movie, they do have a little bit of tech there. He does have some tech set up so he can talk to the humans who remain on Pandora. Mm. So maybe they have Muppet Babies in there. You don't know, is what I I'm like, saying. I like that thing. And this is something that the Mission franchise does as well. And the Avengers franchise does, which is they give people uh, an earpiece and something that you can communicate with people over great distances for convenience sake. And mm. uh, and you can and, and it somehow knows when you want to communicate to people and also when you don't. But Jake does touch his throat when he wants to communicate with people, which is he nice. He does. He's, yeah. he's pretty consistent on it. Nobody else is, I don't think. But. You've reminded me of a question I have, which I haven't figured out after free viewings. So how does Quaritch, Blue Quaritch, know that uh, the sun has died? Because is he just listening in constantly? Like, he knows that because he goes, oh, yeah, he says something about it. But how, how the hell does he know? I think he, he, uh, his guy... I think his guy tells him he shot one of them. He maybe he maybe doesn't know he's dead, but he may have asked further questions off camera. Because I thought it was kind of a stray bullet. Right, okay. Yeah. Hmm. It wasn't quite stray. The guy was firing at them. So maybe he had a view of where he hit. I don't know. Hmm. But yeah, okay. you're right. I, I don't think it's entirely established. That's interesting. I thought second time around, I thought, I thought, oh, they've, they, I, they've explained that. Uh, okay, because I had the same thing after f- the first time the second time I was like oh they have explained it to my satisfaction and then I promptly forgot the explanation but uh, <laughs> but I think I think he either sees it because they're they're he's got the, the what do you call it the long telescopey thingy binoculars that's it he's got those so he can maybe see because hmm. they're they're kind of basically around the body by that point aren't they if they can see Jake them and- surely he could just get a sniper rifle and, and finish them all off you'd think um, but I don't Maybe know. That's Nav- not his style. Mm. He wants to do a face to face. He wants to. He wants to crush Jake's skull the way that he crushed his own skull. Uh, he wants to do that. <laughs> and of course, his bigger beef should be with Natiri, not with Jake. Surely. But anyway, my other question anyway. was like, can Navi drown? Because there are several moments in this <laughs> where I thought someone had died because they drown and they're underwater for like a long time, seemingly they're dead. Hard to kill. And then you just mm. someone just pulls them to the surface and they're immediately okay. But there's like so many points in this film where you think someone's drowned. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I thought the same. I think I think we're meant to believe that yes, that you know, if if you if you 
basically get them back to air quick enough, they'll be okay. So they are meant to be tougher than humans, right? So I guess it's yeah. not a massive stretch, but I had the same thought because that's it's what three different people at least. We see Loak, we see uh, Jake, and we see Quaritch. Um, Quaritch all sort of <laughs> yeah, and then they're air, underwater then- for like five minutes. I mean, yeah, Quaritch dies. Quaritch, the, the Quaritch, what we see, well, well Quaritch is our, our understanding of death happens to, to Quaritch, but maybe there's like a, I don't know, reserve lung that, that Navi have that's slowly, slowly, surely filling with water, but just, just about keeping him and, and Jake Zuli alive. John Landau will know the answer. I'll just email him now. John Landau is the best at gmail.com. There you go. Maybe they've, all got, maybe, maybe they've all got that gunk from the abyss that they've... Um, Yes. <laughs> there we go. That's the answer. Oh my God, such a good scene. I just want to watch The Abyss again after watching yeah. this. True Lies is now on Disney Plus, but there's still no sign of The Abyss. Although apparently it does show up on TV every now and again. So Owen Redmond asks, do you think this is a film that can only be watched in the cinema? I'm not sure it's going to be the same on Disney Plus in a couple of months' time. I mean, it's definitely best in the cinema, but, you know, I just went back and watched uh, the first Avatar, you know, again, and it's still wildly entertaining. I watched Titanic again, still wildly entertaining. He makes films for the big screen, but he also just makes films that you can just devour at a moment's notice. So I I don't think that'll be a major problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Joe Van Fucht, do you think Kiri's story is somewhat akin to the Virgin Mary? Dr. Augustine connecting with Yahweh in the first movie to transfer to the Avatar body, it failing. Um, I don't know why I pronounced Grace's surname the way I just did, but anyway. And then the Avatar suddenly becoming pregnant rang some bells for me, especially with Kiri being able to capture miracles, conjure miracles, Jesus style. I think it's more um, Shmi Skywalker. Yes. I was a little bit thrown by the fact that... um Grace was in the Grace Avatar was in the tank because I thought they killed her off pretty definitively at the end of one. It was like Grace is dead, but then she's kind of in, seems to be in suspended animation. Yeah, I think basically the Avatar is just brainless, um, but was that 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 Avatar was totally fine physically. Uh, Grace's own body was hurt, but her Avatar wasn't anywhere in combat at the time, right? So if I guess you know there's it was just essentially in a coma, so they just chucked it back in the tank because it was I guess a tidy way of keeping it I'm not mm. sure what you do what is the what is the what's the protocol when you've got you know a comatose body that was briefly inhabited by the spirit of your dead friend but the last time we saw Grace's avatar was I guess when she was attached to home tree wasn't she like they were trying mm-hmm. to oh, or, well, not home tree, tree she was not home tree it was the was it was the, the tree, of, tree souls. of souls that's it that's it the tree of souls uh, yeah, I don't know what's going on there. I think it'd be fascinating to see the reaction when her avatar suddenly gave birth. It was like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> I love the fact that there's a conversation about how they absolutely believe that Norm, Norm was getting a little bit untoward with uh, Grace's avatar. <laughs> yeah, that's I where it's going. The spoken thing there is, was it before or after she died? That's the question. I, oh. oh, no. It's going to be <laughs> before. It's Norm. You know it's true. <laughs> Oh, Necronavi. Is that what Normcore is? <laughs> I, I uh, don't know. Had her under Norm- his spell, man. <laughs> Norm Crifilia. No, don't laugh at that. Don't encourage it. <laughs> don't encourage that. I, I, um, my, my, my vote is for Norm. Um, I think you know they had they had something going on those two kids. I I don't know. I just think it's very very strange. Like when Kiri appears, do they try and kill it with brooms? What's going on? Like, <laughs> did it emerge from her chest? Somebody must have noticed the Navi in the tank suddenly, you know, growing a belly, 
and being like, well, that's weird because she ain't sneaking out for chocolate overnight, is she? Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, they probably ran a test and then what do you know? So I, yeah, I, yeah but it's very, right. it's very strange. What the fuck is going on in this movie? Honestly, space whales having dialogue scenes, people giving birth off screen. It's just a madness. You know, the, quar- the whole thing about Quaritch's parenthood of, or, or father fatherdom of, of Spider is so weird. You know, because again, that's not a relationship that we, we knew about or learned about in the first movie. And suddenly it's just there's a, a woman he was clearly hooking up with. Quaritch fucks. He seems to know the Spider's existence. So, you know, he knows who Miles is. He must have named him. Who's the Who's the lady? Who's Courage's lady? I, I I These are so many questions. I need I need to have answered in in the third one. Uh, Jason Blackshaw. What did everyone think of Spider? I found him quite irritating. This <laughs> is Jason Blackshaw. But any any Spider stands in this in this group. No. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I like the the existence of Spider. I like the idea of him as a device. I think what he did to Courage was great. He w- was f- f- fine. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, I didn't think his was the strongest performance, uh, but mm. it wasn't bad. It just wasn't the strongest. But um, I really liked that you've got a human character in the middle of all these CG ones. I, re- I thought that was really effective. Um, and I liked that. I actually it grew on me the the Corich spider mm. relationship. I also like that Cameron's now got you know a little pocket of uh, feral children named after animals with newtoned spider. <laughs> I wonder what's next. Um but yeah, I, he was fine. It was it was I, I'm intrigued by that character. We'll see. Uh Bruby underscore Chris, who's a regular question contributor. I was not a huge fan of the movie. She says, can we accept that this is a major technical achievement, but the story and characters may not have the hook to elevate this film above an amazing screensaver, albeit with some great <gasps> action at the no. end. No, I say no. James and Nick are furious. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I, I think there are some story issues here, um, um, and the characters didn't connect with me in the way that uh, you know I was hoping that they would. But you know, I think it's, I think it's more than just a screensaver. Mm. Uh, if if that were the case, then it would be very, very easy just to make screensaver the movie. And honestly, surprised we don't have one already. We've got a fucking emoji the movie. You know, could we have screensaver the movie and just stick it on three thousand cinemas in the states and break all box office records? Hey, have I just hit upon our get rich quick scheme? <laughs> have I hit upon the thing that gets us out of here? I think I have. Uh, let's do it. Screensaver the movie. Make it work. Yeah, I, I mean, I've seen people say there's not, you know, there's not no real emotion in this, and how do you connect to these characters? I mean, all I can speak from is my own perspective, and I was really moved by it, and I did connect to the characters, and I, especially the Loak um, Payakan story. Mm. I loved that. I, I found myself getting weepy at a few points in this film, and I actually. Um, I was quite overwhelmed by it all the first time. I went back and saw it again, and the uh, the very ending, the quiet bit at the end, you know, the last like twenty minutes, worked for me a lot better the second time. Mm. And um, after all, the spectacle has ended, and it just quietens down, and you just have those um, those great scenes with the the characters just talking, really, and you know, finding a way out of that sinking ship. And I just thought that was that really really works. And I just think yeah. people aren't going back and back to see this again and again if you don't have that emotional undercurrent as well as the spectacle. Also, once again, you know that we, we had the sort of the tree of voices and the tree of souls last time, but to see that sort of I don't know, like, you know, anemone of souls uh, or whatever they have in this one. That that scene with with basically, you know, Jake and Neytiri being able to revisit their lost loved ones is is incredibly powerful and incredibly moving. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly, you know, wish fulfilling um concept I think for all of us who have ever lost anyone. And so that 
absolutely destroyed me uh, towards the end as well. I like them revisiting the fish thing there because mm. the movie starts with them just killing a fish blithely and then by the end, they respect fish, damn it. They love so fish. True. <laughs> <laughs> now that's an arc. Take that, Noah. That's an arc. Uh, I've just thought as well, maybe if we see Jermaine in part three, maybe he'll have, he'll have had a bump on his head which will restore his proper accent. Um, <gasps> Thank God. And we'll learn that Dr. Ian Garvin was earlier head bumped and he he flipped from Kiwi to American and now he'll be back to Kiwi, which I would be very, very much on board with. Uh, but anyway, I think that's it, folks. I think we have exhausted our listener questions. If we didn't get to you, then I apologize. I may have overlooked your question or we have hopefully answered it in our fumbling, faffing way. Uh, but that is it for our Avatar The Way of Water spoiler special. Uh, keep and peel for more spoiler specials coming your way very, very soon, including 2023's first and perhaps only masterpiece, Megan. I am so excited about this. I cannot wait. It's just going to be me laughing maniacally for 45 minutes straight. Um, but that's also going to be with the director, Jared Johnstone, and the writer, Akila Cooper. I'm so, so, so excited to talk about Megan. Uh, and uh, there'll be more stuff as well. So thank you so much for subscribing. It really does mean a lot. Jimbo, do you want to plug uh, a, an exciting new development? <laughs> uh, yes. Today, as we record, though not obviously as we go out, is the launch of Pilot Plus, which is our second subscription service uh whereby uh you get an extra pilot tv podcast every thursday in addition to the one on monday and you also get the main one early and without ads and in addition to that we're going to be doing tv spoiler specials so if you want more spoiler special stuff as if us banging on about films and avatar and stuff isn't enough there will be tv spoiler specials over on the pilot plus channel if you want to know more about that empireonline.com slash pilot tv yes but just to clarify, Jimbo, those are the TV spoiler specials for TV shows that we don't already do spoiler specials for there on the Spoiler Special channel. There will be no Star Wars or Marvel on there, yes. No they, they remain the domain Marvel. of this podcast. Yes, uh, or, 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 or the more the, <laughs> the more somewhat scattershot and rare third category TV shows Chris likes. Yes, uh, yes. Which, <laughs> the TV shows Chris likes will not appear on Pilot Plus. <laughs> or maybe they will, along with Empire's Chris Hewitt. Who knows? <gasps> maybe. Who, Who knows? knows? Who knows? But, uh, for example, we've got The Better Call Saul, uh, Peter Gould interview. Does that go here or does that go there? These are conversations. So These many are conversations we so have So many to have. questions. Really, everyone should just subscribe to both to be on the safe side. Yes. Uh, does anyone else have any uh, shocking or fantastical <laughs> extra subscription services they wish to launch that the, we, we, we want people to know about? Do we have a Nick Dissemblian Plus? Are we getting Helen 24-7? What's, what's happening? I mean, the, his darker materials is now up online complete as you oh, listen Christ, to this. Oh, Christ, she That's actually does have something to plug. Fuck you it up. You, you left the door open and I just galloped right through. For only £7.99 a month, you too can have access to my drafts folder of tweets. <laughs> that would be uh, for amazing. For £10 eh? a month, you can, get, you can subscribe to Creepy Chris, where I will, I will break into someone's house every night and just stand above you as you sleep wow. and watch you. Uh, so you can do that. That's just £10 a month, folks. That is an absolute bargain. I've been getting uh, that service for no. free for the past five years. <laughs> I, do, I do not recommend <laughs> it to anyone. Yes. Uh, Nick, and, Nick and James and I have slept in the same room together uh, before. It's, um, that is yeah. true. That yeah, is very true. Yeah. And you Creep. weren't alone. Creepy Chris. Sometimes, with our knowledge. Creepy Chris Sometimes not with our knowledge. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Anyway, folks, that is def definitely it for our Avatar The Way of Water special. It's time to say goodbye to my three colleagues of such lethal cunning squad cast names. Who's you talking to me? That's me. That's you, James Dyer. Goodbye. You <laughs> See you later. <laughs> it's too painful. <laughs> <laughs>
listening to James's impression of Payakan. It is too painful. Uh, it is goodbye from I know who Nick Scoresby is. It's goodbye from Nick Desemlian. Get wet, bring the bang, let's make some money. Let's make some money with screensaver the movie. I'm the one with the screensaver. Uh, it's goodbye from In the Navi, Helen O'Hara. And it's goodbye from me. It's better effects down where it's wetter effects. A joke that was actually subbed by Nick earlier on (laughs) because it was originally better digital and wetter digital. But Nick points out that wetter digital has now changed its name. So there you go. Thanks a bunch, Nick. Exciting times. That's exciting times. If you can't get out of it, get into into it. it. Get into (laughs) it. Imagine if Richard Taylor had played (laughs) played Nick Scoresby. (laughs) Oh, yeah, Richard Taylor had played. I mean, a bit of brilliant. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) is this the only podcast in which you were going to hear an impression of Richard Taylor? Uh, Who knows? <laughs> we'll be back in a couple of years' time to talk about the re- cl- glorious return of Mick Scoresby and Jermaine Clemens' uh, Kiwi accent. In the meantime, it is goodbye from me. It's better FX downwards, wetter FX. You know what, folks? They say the way of water has no beginning or end. Thankfully, this podcast has both. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.